This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Seton's Ant by Walter de la Mare. It's read by Mr. Jim Moon of the Hypnagoria podcast. It runs 1 hour 36 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Seton's Ant by Walter de la Mare. I had heard rumors of Seton's aunt long before I actually encountered her. Seaton, in the hush of confidence, or at any little show of toleration on our part, would remark, My aunt, or my old aunt, you know, as if his relative might be a kind of cement to an entente cordiale. He had an unusual quantity of pocket money, or at any rate, it was bestowed on him in unusually large amounts, and he spent it freely though none of us would have described him as an awfully generous chap. Hello, Seaton, he would say. The old begum? At the beginning of term two, he used to bring back surprising and exotic dainties in a box with a trick padlock that accompanied him from his first appearance at Gummidge's in a billycock hat to the rather abrupt conclusion of his school days. From a boy's point of view, he looked distastefully foreign, with his yellow skin and slow chocolate-coloured eyes and lean, weak figure. Merely for his looks, he was treated by most of us true blue Englishmen with condescension, hostility, or contempt. We used to call him Pongo, but without any better excuse for the nickname than his skin. He was, that is in one sense of the term, what he assuredly was not in any other sense, a sport. Seaton and I were never, in any sense, intimate at school. Our orbits only intersected in class. I kept instinctively aloof from him. I felt vaguely he was a sneak, and remained quite unmollified by advances on his side, which, in a boy's barbarous fashion, Unless it suited me to be magnanimous, I haughtily ignored. We were both of us quick-footed, and at prisoner's base used to occasionally hide together. And so I best remember Seaton. His narrow, watchful face in the dusk of summer evening, his peculiar crouch, and his inarticulate whisperings and mumblings. Otherwise, he played all games slackly and limply, used to stand and feed at his locker with a crony or two until his tuck gave out, or waste his money on some outlandish fancy or other. He bought, for instance, a silver bangle which he wore above his left elbow, until some of the fellows showed their masterly contempt of the practice by dropping it nearly red-hot down his neck. It needed, therefore, a rather peculiar taste, a rather rare kind of schoolboy courage and indifference to criticism to be much associated with him, and I had neither the taste nor the courage. 
Nonetheless, he did make advances, and on one memorable occasion went the length of bestowing on me a whole pot of some outlandish mulberry-coloured jelly that had been duplicated in his term's supplies. In the exuberance of my gratitude, I promised to spend the next half-term holiday with him at his aunt's house. I had clean forgotten my promise when, two or three days before the holiday, he came up and triumphantly reminded me of it. "'Well, to tell you the honest truth, Seton, old chap,' I began graciously. But he cut me short. "'My aunt expects you,' he said. "'She's very glad you are coming. She's sure to be very decent to you with us.' I looked at him in some astonishment. The emphasis was unexpected. It seemed to suggest an aunt not hitherto hinted at, and a friendly feeling on Seton's side that was more disconcerting than welcome. We reached his home partly by train, partly by a lift in an empty farm cart, and partly by walking. It was a whole day holiday, and we were to sleep the night. He lent me extraordinary night gear, I remember. The village street was unusually wide, and was fed from a green by two converging roads, with an inn and a high green sign at the corner. About a hundred yards down the street was a chemist's shop, Mr Tanner's. We descended the two steps into his dusky and odorous interior to buy, I remember, some rat poison. A little beyond the chemist's was the forge. You then walked along a very narrow path, under a fairly high wall, nodding here and there with weeds and tufts of grass, and so came to the iron garden gates and saw the high flat house beneath its huge sycamore. A coach-house stood on the left of the house, and on the right a gate led into a kind of rambling orchard. The lawn lay away over to the left again, and at the bottom, for the whole garden sloped gently to a sluggish and rushy pond-like stream, was a meadow. We arrived at noon and entered the gates, out of the hot dust beneath the glitter of the dark-curtained windows. Seaton led me at once through the little garden gate to show me his tadpole pond, swarming with what, being myself not the least bit of a naturalist, I considered the most horrible creatures, of all shapes, consistencies and sizes but with whom Seaton seemed to be on the most intimate of terms. I can see his absorbed face now, as he lay on his heels and fished the slimy things out in his sallow palms. Wearying at last of his pets, we loitered about a while in a nameless fashion. Seaton seemed to be listening, or at any rate waiting, for something to happen, or for someone to come. But nothing did happen, and no one came. That was just like Seaton. Anyhow, the first view I got of his aunt was when, at the summons of a distant gong, we turned from the garden, 
very hungry and thirsty, to go into luncheon. We were approaching the house when Seaton suddenly came to a standstill. Indeed, I have always had the impression that he plucked at my sleeve. Something, at least, seemed to catch me back, as it were, as he cried, Look out, there she is! She was standing in an upper window, which opened wide on a hinge, and at first sight she looked an excessively tall and overwhelming figure. This, however, was mainly because the window reached all but to the floor of her bedroom. She was, in reality, rather an undersized woman, in spite of her long face and big head. She must have stood, I think, unusually still, with eyes fixed on us, though this impression may have been due to Seaton's sudden warning, and to my consciousness of the cautious and subdued air that had fallen on him at the sight of her. I knew that, without the least reason in the world, I felt a kind of guiltiness, as if I had been caught. There was a silvery star pattern sprinkled on her black silk dress, and even from the ground I could see the immense coils of her hair and the rings on her left hand, which was held fingering the small jet buttons of her bodice. She watched our united advance without stirring, until, imperceptibly, her eyes raised and lost themselves in the distance, so that it was out of an assumed reverie that she appeared suddenly to awaken to our presence beneath her when we drew close to the house. "'So this is your friend, Mr. Smithers, I suppose?' she said, bobbing to me. "'With us?' "'Aunt,' said Seaton. "'It's much the same,' she said, with eyes fixed on me. "'Come in, Mr. Withers, and bring him along with you.' She continued to gaze at me. At least, I think she did so. I know that the fixity of her scrutiny and her ironical mister made me feel peculiarly uncomfortable. But she was extremely kind and attentive to me, though perhaps her kindness and attention showed up more vividly against her complete neglect of Seaton. Only one remark that I have any recollection of she made to him. When I look on my nephew, Mr. Smithers, I realise that dust we are, and dust shall become. You are hot, dirty, and incorrigible, Arthur. She sat at the head of the table, seaten at the foot, and I before a wide waste of damask tablecloth between them. It was an old and rather close dining-room, with windows thrown wide to the green garden, and a wonderful cascade of fading roses. Miss Seaton's great chair faced this window, so that its rose-reflected light shone fully on her yellowish face, and on just such chocolate eyes as my schoolfellows except hers were more than half covered 
by unusually long and heavy lids. There she sat eating, with those sluggish eyes fixed for the most part on my face. Above them stood the deep-lined fork between her eyebrows, and above that the wide expanse of a remarkable brow beneath its strange steep bank of hair. The lunch was copious, and consisted, I remember, of all such dishes as are generally considered mischievous and too good for schoolboy digestion. Lobster mayonnaise, cold game sausages, an immense veal and ham pie, fast with eggs and numberless delicious flavours, besides sauces, kickshaws, creams and sweetmeats. We even had wine, a half glass of an old darkish sherry each. Miss Seaton enjoyed and indulged an enormous appetite. Her example and a natural schoolboy veracity soon overcame my nervousness of her, even to the extent of allowing me to enjoy, to the best of my bent, so rare a spread. Seaton was singularly modest. The greater part of his meal consisted of almonds and raisins, which he nibbled surreptitiously, as if he found difficulty in swallowing them. I don't mean that Miss Seaton conversed with me. She merely scattered trenchant remarks and now and then twinkled a baited question over my head. But her face was like a dense and involved accompaniment to her talk. She presently dropped the mister, to my intense relief, and called me now Withers, or Wither, now Smithers, and even once towards the close of the meal, distinctly Johnson. Though how on earth my name suggested it, or whose face mine had reanimated in memory, I cannot conceive. And is Arthur a good boy at school, Mr. Wither? was one of her many questions. Does he please his masters? Is he first in his class? What does the Reverend Dr. Gummidge think of him, eh? I knew she was jeering at him, but her face was adamant against the least flicker of sarcasm or facetiousness. I gazed fixedly at a blushing crescent of lobster. I think you're the eighth, aren't you, Seaton? Seaton moved his small pupils towards his aunt, but she continued to gaze with a kind of concentrated detachment at me. Arthur will never make a brilliant scholar, I fear, she said, lifting a dexterously burdened fork to her wide mouth. After luncheon, she preceded me up to my bedroom. It was a jolly little bedroom, with a brass fender and rugs and a polished floor, on which it was possible, I afterwards found, to play snowshoes. On the washstand was a little black-framed watercolour drawing, depicting a very large eye with an extremely fish-like intensity in the spark of light on the dark pupil and in illuminated lettering beneath was printed very minutely, Thou God seest me. 
followed by a long looped monogram, SS, in the corner. The other pictures were all of the sea, brigs on blue water, a schooner overtopping chalk cliffs, a rocky island of prodigious steepness, and two tiny sailors dragging a monstrous boat up a shelf of beach. This is the room with us. My brother William died in when a boy. Admire the view. I looked out of the window across the treetops. It was a day hot with sunshine over the green fields, and the cattle were standing, swishing their tails in the shallow water. But the view at the moment was only exaggeratedly vivid, because I was horribly dreading that she would presently inquire after my luggage, and I had not brought even a toothbrush. Indeed, I need have had no fear. Hers was not that highly civilised type of mind that is stuffed with sharp material details. Nor could her ample presence be described as in the least motherly. I would never consent to question a schoolfellow behind my nephew's back, she said, standing in the middle of the room. But tell me, Smithers, why is Arthur so unpopular? You, I understand, are his only close friend. She stood in a dazzle of sun, and out of it her eyes regarded me with such leaden penetration beneath their thick lids that I doubt if my face concealed the least thought from her. But there, there, she added very suavely, stooping her head a little. Don't trouble to answer me. I never extort an answer. Boys are queer fish. Brains might perhaps have suggested his washing his hands before luncheon, but not my choice, Smithers. God forbid. And now perhaps you would like to go into the garden again. I cannot actually see from here, but I should not be surprised if Arthur is now skulking behind that hedge. He was. I saw his head come up and take a rapid glance at the windows. Join him, Mr. Smithers. We shall meet again, I hope, at the tea-table. The afternoon I spend in retirement. Whether or not, Seaton and I had not been long engaged with the aid of two green switches in riding round and round a lumbering old grey horse we found in the meadow, before a rather bunched-up figure appeared, walking along the field path on the other side of the water, with a magenta parasol studiously lowered in our direction throughout her slow progress, as if that were the magnetic needle and we the fixed pole. Seaton at once lost all nerve in his riding. At the next lurch of the old mare's heels, he toppled over into the grass, and I slid off the sleek broad back to join him where he stood, rubbing his shoulder and sourly watching the rather pompous figure till it was out of sight. "'Was that your aunt, Seaton?' I inquired, but not till then. He nodded. 
Why didn't she take any notice of us, then? She never does. Why not? Oh, she knows all right, without. That's the damn awful part of it. Seaton was the only fellow at Gummidge's who ever had the ostentation to use bad language. He had suffered for it, too. But it wasn't, I think, bravado. I believe he really felt certain things more intensely than most other fellows, and they were generally things that fortunate and average people do not feel at all. That peculiar quality, for instance, of the British schoolboy's imagination. I tell you, Withers, he went on moodily, slinking across the meadow with his hands covered up in his pockets. She sees everything. And what she doesn't see, she knows without. But how? I said, not because I was much interested, but because the afternoon was so hot and tiresome and purposeless, it seemed more of a bore to remain silent. Seaton turned gloomily and spoke in a very low voice. Don't appear to be talking of her, if you wouldn't mind. It's because she's in league with the devil. He nodded his head and stooped to pick up a round, flat pebble. I tell you, he said, still stooping, you fellows don't realise what it is. I know I'm a bit close and all that, but so would you be if you had that old hag listening to every thought you think. I looked at him, and then turned and surveyed one by one the windows of the house. "'Where is your pater?' I said awkwardly. "'Dead ages and ages ago. And my mother, too. She's not my aunt, by all rights.' "'What is she, then?' "'I mean, she's not my mother's sister, because my grandmother married twice.' And she's one of the first lot. I don't know what you'd call her. But anyhow, she's not my real aunt. She gives you plenty of pocket money. Seaton looked steadfast at me out of his flat eyes. She can't give me what's mine. When I come of age, half of the whole lot will be mine. And what's more, he turned his back on the house. I'll make her hand over every blessed shilling of it. I put my hands in my pockets and stared at Seaton. Is it much? He nodded. Who told you? He suddenly got very angry. A darkish red came into his cheeks. His eyes glistened, but he made no answer. And we loitered listlessly about the garden until it was time for tea. Seaton's aunt was wearing an extraordinary kind of lace jacket when we sidled sheepishly into the drawing-room together. She greeted me with a heavy and protracted smile and bade me bring a chair close to the little table. "'I hope Arthur has made you feel at home,' she said, as she handed me my cup in a crooked hand. "'He doesn't talk much to me, but then I'm an old woman.' You must come again with her, and draw him out of his shell. 
you old snail. She wagged her head at Seaton, who sat munching cake and watching her intently. And we must correspond, perhaps. She nearly shut her eyes at me. You must write and tell me everything behind the creature's back. I confess I found her rather disquieting company. The evening drew on. Lamps were brought by a man with a nondescript face and very quiet footsteps. Seaton was told to bring out the chessmen, and we played a game, she and I, with her big chin thrust over the board at every move, as she gloated over the pieces and occasionally croaked, Check! After which she would sit back inscrutably staring at me, but the game was never finished. She simply hemmed me defencelessly in with a cloud of men that held me impotent, and yet one and all refused to administer to my poor flustering old king a merciful coup de grace. There, she said as the clock struck ten, a drawn game with us. We are very evenly matched, a very credible defence with us. You know your room. There's supper on a tray in the dining room. Don't let the creature overeat himself. The gong will sound three quarters of an hour before a punctual breakfast. She held out her cheek to Seaton, and he kissed it with obvious prefunctoriness. With me, she shook hands. An excellent game, she said cordially but my memory is poor, and, she swept the pieces helter-skelter into the box, the result will never be known. She raised her great head far back, eh? It was a kind of challenge, and I could only murmur, oh, I was obviously in a hole, you know, when she burst out laughing and waved both of us out of the room. Seaton and I stood and ate our supper, with one candlestick to light us, in a corner of the dining-room. "'Well, and how would you like it?' he said very softly, after cautiously poking his head around the doorway. "'Like what?' "'Being spied on. Every blessed thing you do and think.' "'I shouldn't like it at all,' I said. "'If she does.' and yet you let her smash you up at chess. I didn't let her, I said indignantly. Well, you funked it then. Well, I didn't funk it either, I said. She's so jolly clever with her knights. Seaton stared fixedly at the candle. You wait, that's all, he said slowly. And we went upstairs to bed. I had not been long in bed, I think, when I was cautiously awakened by a touch on my shoulder, and there was Seaton's face in the candlelight, and his eyes looking into mine. "'What's up?' I said, rising quickly to my elbow. "'Don't scurry,' he whispered, "'or she'll hear. "'Sorry for waking you, but I didn't think you'd be asleep so soon.' 
Why, what's the time then? Seaton wore, what was then rather unusual, a night suit, and he hauled his big silver watch out of the pocket in his jacket. It's quarter to twelve. I never get to sleep before twelve. Not here. What do you do then? Oh, I read and listen. Listen? Seaton stared into his candle flame as if he were listening then. You can't guess what it is. All you reading ghost stories? That's all rot. You can't see much with us. But you know all the same. Know what? Why, that they're there. Who's there? I asked fretfully, glancing at the door. Why, in the house? It swarms with them. You just stand still and listen outside my bedroom door in the middle of the night. I have. Dozens of times. They're all over the place. Look here, Seaton, I said. You asked me to come here, and I didn't mind chucking up a leave just to oblige you and because I'd promised. But don't get talking a lot of wrath, that's all. Or you'll know the difference when we get back. Don't fret, he said coldly, turning away. I shan't be at school long, and what's more, you're here now, and there isn't anyone else to talk to. I'll chance the other. Look here, Seaton, I said. You may think you're going to scare me with a lot of stuff about voices and all that, but I'll just thank you to clear out, or you may please yourself about pottering about all night. He made no answer. He was standing by the dressing-table, looking across his candle into the looking-glass. He turned and stared slowly round the walls. Even this room's nothing more than a coffin. I suppose she told you. It's all exactly the same as when my brother William died. Trust her for that. And good luck to him, say I. Look at that. He raised his candle close to the little watercolour I have mentioned. There's hundreds of eyes like that in the house. And even if God does see you, he takes precious good care you don't see him. And it's just the same with them. I'll tell you what, Withers, I'm getting sick of all this. I shan't stand it much longer. The house was silent within and without and even in the yellowish radiance of the candle, a faint silver showed through the open window on my blind. I slipped off the bedclothes wide awake, and sat irresolute on the bedside. I know you're only guying me, I said angrily, but why is the house full of what you say? Why do you hear? What do you hear? Tell me that, you silly foal. Seaton sat down on a chair and rested his candlestick on one knee. He blinked at me calmly. She brings them, he said with lifted eyebrows. Who? Your aunt? He nodded. How? I told you, 
he said pettishly. She's in league. You don't know. She as good as killed my mother. I know that. But it's not only her by a long chalk. She just sucks you dry. I know. And that's what she'll do for me. Because I'm like her. Like my mother, I mean. She simply hates to see me alive. I wouldn't be like that old she-wolf for a million pounds. And so he broke off with a comprehensive wave of his candlestick. They're always here. Ah, my boy, wait till she's dead. She'll hear something then, I can tell you. It's all very well now, but wait till then. I wouldn't be in her shoes when she has to clear out. For something. Don't you go and believe I care for ghosts, or whatever you like to call them. We're all in the same box. We're all under her thumb. He was looking almost nonchalantly at the ceiling at the moment, when I saw his face change, and saw his eyes suddenly drop like shot birds, and fixed themselves on the cranny of the door he had just left ajar. Even from where I sat I could see his colour change. He went greenish. He crouched without stirring, simply fixed. And I, scarcely daring to breathe, sat with creeping skin, simply watching him. His hands relaxed, and he gave a kind of sigh. "'Was that one?' I whispered, with a timid show of jauntiness. He looked round, opened his mouth, and nodded. "'What?' I said. He jerked his thumb with meaningful eyes, and I knew that he meant that his aunt had been there listening at our door cranny. "'Look here, Seaton. I said once more, wriggling to my feet. You may think I'm a jolly noodle, just as you please, but your aunt has been civil to me and all that, and I don't believe a word you say about her, that's all, and never did. Every fellow's a bit off his pluck at night, and you may think it's a fine sport to try your rubbish on me. I heard your aunt come upstairs before I fell asleep, and I'll bet you a level tanner she's in bed now. What's more, you can keep your blessed ghosts to yourself. It's a guilty conscience, I should think. Seaton looked at me curiously, without answering for a moment. I'm not a liar, Withers. But I'm not going to quarrel either. You're the only chap I care a button for. Or at least you're the only chap that's ever come here. And it's something to tell a chap what you feel. I don't care a fig for fifty thousand ghosts, although I swear on my solemn oath that I know they're here. But she, he turned deliberately, you laid a tanner she's in bed with us. But I know different. She's never in bed much of the night, and I'll prove it too. Just to show you, I'm not such a nolly as you think I am. Come on. Come on where? Why, to see? I hesitated. 
He opened a large cupboard and took out a small dark dressing gown and a kind of shawl jacket. He threw the jacket on the bed and put on the gown. His dusky face was colourless, and I could see by the way he fumbled at the sleeves he was shivering. But it was no good showing the white feather now, so I threw the tasseled shawl over my shoulders, and, leaving our candle brightly burning on the chair, we went out together and stood in the corridor. Now then, listen, Seaton whispered. We stood leaning over the staircase. It was like leaning over a well, so still and chill the air was all around us. But presently, as I suppose happens in most old houses, began to echo an answer in my ears, a melody of infinite small stirrings and whisperings. Now, out of the distance, an old timber would relax its fibres, or a scurry dine away behind the perishing wainscot. But amid and behind such sounds as these, I seemed to begin to be conscious, as it were, of the lightest of footfalls, sounds as faint as the vanishing remembrance of voices in a dream. Seaton was all in obscurity, except his face. Out of that, his eyes gleamed darkly, watching me. You'd hear two in time, my fine soldier, he muttered. Come on. He descended the stairs, slipping his lean fingers lightly along the bolsters. He turned to the right at the loop, and I followed him barefooted along a thickly carpeted corridor. At the end stood a door ajar. From here we very stealthily, and in complete blackness, ascended five narrow stairs. Seaton, with immense caution, slowly pushed open a door, and we stood together looking into a great pool of duskiness, out of which, lit by the feeble clearness of a nightlight, rose a vast bed. A heap of clothes lay on the floor, beside them two slippers dozed, with noses each to each, two yards apart. Somewhere a little clock ticked huskily. There was a rather close smell of lavender and eau de cologne, mingled with the fragrance of ancient sachets, soap and drugs. Yet it was a scent even more peculiarly commingling than that. And the bed, I stared warily in. It was mounded gigantically, and it was empty. Seaton turned a vague, pale face, all shadows. "'What did I say?' he muttered. "'Who's... who's the fool now, I say? "'How are we going to get back without meeting her, I say? "'Answer me that. "'Oh, I wish to goodness you hadn't come here with us.' "'He stood visibly shivering in his skimpy gown "'and could hardly speak 
for his teeth chattering. And very distinctly, in the hush that followed his whisper, I heard approaching a faint, unhurried, voluminous rustle. Seaton clutched my arm, dragged me to the right across the room, to a large cupboard, and drew the door close to on us. And presently, as with bursting lungs I peered out into the long, low curtain bedroom, waddled in that wonderful great head and body. I can see her now, all patched and lined with shadow. Her tied-up hair, she must have enormous quantities of it for so old a woman. Her heavy lids above those flat, slow, vigilant eyes. She just passed across my ken in the vague dark, but the bed was out of sight. We waited on and on, listening to the clock's muffled ticking. Not the ghost of a sound rose up from the great bed. Either she lay archly listening, or slept a sleep serener than an infant's. And when it seemed we had been hours in hiding, and were cramped, chilled, and half-suffocated, we crept out on all fours, with terror knocking at our ribs, and so down the five narrow stairs, and back into the little candle-lit blue-and-gold bedroom. Once there, Seaton gave in. He sat livid on a chair with closed eyes. Here, I said, shaking his arm, I'm going to bed. I've had enough of this foolery. I'm going to bed. His lips quivered, but he made no answer. I poured out some water into my basin, and, with that cold pictured azure eye fixed on us, bespattered Seaton's sallow face and forehead and dabbled his hair. Presently he sighed and opened fish-like eyes. "'Come on,' I said. "'Don't get shamming, there's a good chap. "'Get on my back, if you like, and I'll carry you into your bedroom.' He waved me away and stood up. And so, with my candle in one hand, I took him under the arm and walked him along, according to his direction, down the corridor. His was a much dingier room than mine, and littered with boxes, paper, cages, and clothes. I huddled him into bed and turned to go, and suddenly, I can hardly explain it now, a kind of cold and deadly terror swept over me. I almost ran out of the room, with eyes fixed rigidly in front of me, blew out my candle, and buried my head under the bedclothes. When I awoke, roused by a long-continued tapping at my door, sunlight was raying in on cornice and bedpost, and birds were singing in the garden. I got up, ashamed of the night's folly, dressed quickly and went downstairs. The breakfast room was sweet with flowers and fruit and honey. Seaton's aunt was standing in the garden, besides the open French window, feeding a great flutter of birds. I watched her for a moment unseen. 
Her face was set in a deep reverie, beneath the shadow of a big loose sun hat. It was deeply lined, crooked, and, in a way I can't describe, fixedly vacant and strange. I coughed, and she turned at once with a prodigious smile to inquire how I had slept. And in that mysterious way by which we learn each other's secret thoughts without a sentence spoken, I knew that she had followed every word and movement of the night before, and was triumphing over my affected innocence and ridiculing my friendly and too easy advances. We returned to school, Seaton and I, lavishly laden, and by rail all the way. I made no reference to the obscure talk we had had, and resolutely refused to meet his eyes or take up the hints he let fall. I was relieved, and yet I was sorry to be going back, and strode on as fast as I could from the station, with Seaton almost trotting at my heels. But he insisted on buying more fruit and sweets my share of which I accepted with a very bad grace. It was uncomfortably like a bribe, and, after all, I had no quarrel with his rum old aunt, and hadn't really believed half the stuff he had told me. I saw as little of him as I could after that. He never referred to our visit or resumed his confidences. Though in class I would sometimes catch his eye fixed on mine, full of a mute understanding, which I easily affected not to understand. He left Gummidge's, as I have said, rather abruptly, though I never heard of anything to his discredit, and I did not see him or have any news of him again, till by chance we met one summer afternoon in the Strand. He was dressed rather oddly in a coat too large for him, and a bright silky tie. But we instantly recognised one another under the awning of a cheap jeweller's shop. He immediately attached himself to me and dragged me off, and not too cheerily, to lunch with him at an Italian restaurant nearby. He chattered about our old school, which he remembered only with dislike and disgust, told me cold-bloodedly of the fate of one or two of the old fellows who had been among his chief tormentors, insisted on an expensive wine and the whole gamut of the rich menu, and finally informed me, with a good deal of niggling, that he had come up to town to buy an engagement ring. And of course... "'How is your aunt?' I inquired at last. "'He seemed to have been awaiting the question. "'It fell like a stone into a deep pool. "'So many expressions flitted across his long, un-English face. "'She's aged a good deal,' he said softly, and broke off. "'She's been very decent,' he continued presently after, "'and paused again.' In a way, he eyed me fleetingly. I dare say you heard that she, that is, we, had lost a good deal of money. 
No, I said. Oh, yes, said Seaton, and paused again. And somehow, poor fellow, I knew, in the clink and clatter of glass and voices, that he had lied to me, that he did not possess, and never had possessed, a penny beyond what his aunt had squandered on his too ample allowance of pocket money. And the ghosts? I inquired quizzically. He grew instantly solemn, and though it may have been my fancy, slightly yellowed. But you are making game of me, Withers, was all he said. He asked for my address, and I rather reluctantly gave him my card. Look here, Withers, he said, as we stood in the sunlight on the thronging curb, saying good-bye. Here I am, and it's all very well. I'm not perhaps as fanciful as I was, but you are practically the only friend I have on earth, except for Alice. And there, to make a clean breast of it, I'm not sure that my aunt cares much about my getting married. She doesn't say so, of course. You know her well enough for that. He looked sidelong at the rattling, gaudy traffic. What I was going to say is this. Would you mind coming down? You needn't stay the night unless you please. Though, of course, you know you'd be awfully welcome. But I should like you to meet my... To meet Alice. And then, perhaps, you might tell me your honest opinion of... Of the other two. I vaguely demurred. He pressed me. And we parted with a half-promise that I would come. He waved his ball-topped cane at me and ran off in his long jacket after a bus. A letter arrived soon after, in his small, weak handwriting, giving me full particulars regarding to route and trains. And, without the least curiosity, even, perhaps with some little annoyance that chance should have thrown us together again, I accepted his invitation and arrived one hazy midday at his out-of-the-way station, to find him sitting on a low seat under a clump of double hollyhocks awaiting me. His face looked absent and singularly listless, but he seemed, nonetheless, pleased to see me. We walked up the village street, past the little dingy apothecaries and the empty forge, and, as on my first visit, skirted the house together, and, instead of entering by the front door, made our way down the green path into the garden at the back. A pale haze of cloud muffled the sun. The garden lay in a grey shimmer. Its old trees, its snapdragoned, faintly glittering walls. But there seemed now an air of neglect, where before all had been neat and methodical. There was a patch of shallowly dug soil, and a worn-down spade leaning against a tree. There was an old broken wheelbarrow. The goddess of neglect was there. "'You ain't much of a gardener, Seaton,' I said, with a sigh of ease. "'I think, do you know, I like it best like this,' said Seaton. "'We haven't any gardener now, of course. Can't afford it.' 
He stood staring at his little dark square of freshly turned earth. And it always seems to me, he went on ruminatingly, that, after all, we are nothing better than interlopers on the earth, disfiguring and staining wherever we go. I know it's shocking blasphemy to say so, but then it's different here, you see. We are farther away. To tell you the truth, Seaton, I don't quite see, I said. But this isn't a new philosophy, is it? Anyhow, it's a precious beastly one. It's only what I think, he replied with his odd, old, stubborn meekness. We wandered on together, talking little, and still with that expression of uneasy vigilance on Seaton's face. He pulled out his watch as we stood, gazing idly over the green meadow and the dark, motionless bulrushes. I think perhaps it's nearly time for lunch, he said. Would you like to come in? We turned and walked slowly towards the house, across whose windows, I confess my own eyes too, went restlessly in search of its rather disconcerting inmate. There was a pathetic look of draggledness, of want of means and care, rust and overgrowth and faded paint. Seaton's aunt, a little to my relief, did not share our meal. Seaton carved the cold meat and dispatched a heaped-up plate by the elderly servant for his aunt's private consumption. We talked little and in half-suppressed tones, and sipped a bottle of Madeira which Seaton had rather heedfully fetched out of the great mahogany sideboard. I played him a dull and effortless game of chess, yawning between the moves he generally made almost at haphazard, and with attention elsewhere engaged. About five o'clock came the sound of a distant ring, and Seaton jumped up, overturning the board, and so ending a game that might have fatuously continued to this day. He effusively excused himself, and after a little while returned with a slim, dark, rather sallow girl of about nineteen, in a white gown and hat, to whom I was presented with some little nervousness as his dear old friend and schoolfellow. We talked on in the pale afternoon light, still, as it seemed to me, and even in spite of real effort to be clear and gay, in a half-suppressed, lacklustre fashion. We all seemed, if it were not my fancy, to be expectant, to be rather anxiously awaiting an arrival, the appearance of someone who all but filled our collective consciousness. Seaton talked least of all, and in a restless, interjectory way, as he continually fidgeted from chair to chair. At last he proposed a stroll in the garden, before the sun should have quite gone down. Alice walked between us. Her hair and eyes were conspicuously dark against the whiteness of her gown. She carried herself not ungracefully, and yet without the least movement of her arms and body, and answered us both without turning her head. There was a curious, provocative reserve in that impassive and rather long face, 
a half-unconscious strength of character. And yet somehow I knew, I believe we all knew, that this walk, this discussion of their future plans, was a futility. I had nothing to base such a cynicism on, except only a vague sense of oppression, the foreboding remembrance of the inert, invincible power in the background, to whom optimistic plans and love-making and youth are as chaff and thistledown. We came back silent in the last light. Seaton's aunt was there, under an old brass lamp. Her hair was as barbarously massed and curled as ever. Her eyelids, I think, hung even heavier in age over their slow-moving, inscrutable pupils. We filed in softly out of the evening, and I made my bow. In this short interval, Mr. Withers, she remarked amiably, you have put off youth, put on the man. Dear me, how sad it is to see the young days vanishing. Sit down. My nephew tells me you met by chance, or act of providence, shall we call it, and in my beloved strand. You, I understand, are to be best man. Yes, best man. Or am I divulging secrets? She surveyed Arthur and Alice with overwhelming graciousness. They sat apart on two low chairs and smiled in return. And Arthur, how do you think Arthur is looking? I think he looks very much in need of a change, I said deliberately. A change? Indeed. She all but shut her eyes at me, and, with an exaggerated sentimentality, shook her head. My dear Mr. Withers, are we not all in need of a change in this fleeting, fleeting world? She mused over the remark like a connoisseur. And you, she continued, turning abruptly to Alice, I hope you've pointed out to Mr. Withers all my pretty bits. We walked round the garden, said Alice, looking out of the window. It is a very beautiful evening. Is it? said the old lady, starting up violently. Then on this very beautiful evening we shall go into supper. Mr. Withers, your arm. Arthur, bring your bride. I can scarcely describe with what curious ruminations... I led the way into the faded, heavy-aired dining-room, with this indefinable old creature leaning weightily on my arm, the large flat bracelet on the yellow-laced wrist. She fumed a little, breathed rather heavily, as if with an effort of mind rather than of body, for she had grown much stouter, and yet little more proportionate and to talk into that great white face so close to mine was a queer experience in the dim light of the corridor, and even in the twinkling crystal of the candles. She was naive, appallingly naive. She was sudden and superficial. She was even arch, and all these in the brief, rather puffy passage from one room to the other with these two tongue-tied children bringing up the rear. The meal was tremendous. 
I have never seen such a monstrous salad. But the dishes were greasy and overspiced, and were indifferently cooked. One thing only was quite unchanged. My hostess's appetite was gargantuan as ever. The old solid candelabra that lighted us stood before her high-backed chair. Seaton sat a little removed, with his plate almost in darkness. And throughout this prodigious meal his aunt talked, mainly to me, mainly at Seaton, with an occasional satirical courtesy to Alice, and muttered explosions of directions to the servant. She had aged, and yet, if it be not nonsense to say so, seemed no older. I suppose to the pyramids a decade is but the rustling down of a handful of dust. And she reminded me of some such unshakable prehistoricism. She was certainly an amazing talker, racy, extravagant, with a delivery that was perfectly overwhelming. As for Seaton, her flashes of silence were for him. On her enormous volubility, would suddenly fall a hush, acid sarcasm would be left implied, and she would sit softly moving her great head, with eyes fixed in full dreamy smile, but with a whole attention one could see, slowly, joyously absorbing his mute discomfiture. She confided in hers her views on a theme vaguely occupying at the moment, I suppose, all our minds. We have barbarous institutions, and so must put up, I suppose, with a never-ending procession of fools, of fools ad infinitum. Marriage, Mr. Withers, was instituted in the privacy of a garden, sub rosa, as it were. Civilization flaunts it in the glare of day. The dull marry the poor, the rich the effete. And so our new Jerusalem is peopled with naturals, plain and coloured, at either end. I detest folly. I detest still more, if I must be frank, dear Arthur, mere cleverness. Mankind has become a, a tailless host of uninstinctive animals. We should never have taken to evolution, Mr. Withers. Natural selection? Little gods and fishes, the deaf for the dumb. We should have used our brains, intellectual pride, the ecclesiastics call it. And by brains I mean, what do I mean, Alice? I mean, my dear child. And she laid two gross fingers on Alice's narrow sleeve. I mean courage. Consider it, Arthur. I read that the scientific world is once more beginning to be afraid of spiritual agencies. Spiritual agencies that tap and actually float, bless their hearts. I think just one more of those mulberries, thank you. They talk about blind love. She ran inconsequently on as she helped herself with eyes fixed on the dish. But why blind? I think, do you know, from weeping over its rickets. 
After all, it is we plain women that triumph, Mr. Withers, beyond the mockery of time. Alice now, fleeting, fleeting is youth, my child. What's that you are confiding to your plate, Arthur? Satirical boy. He laughs at his old aunt. Nay, thou didst laugh. He detests all sentiment. He whispers the most acid asides. Come, my love, we will leave these cynics. We will go and commiserate with each other on our sex. The choice of two evils, Mr. Withers. I opened the door and she swept out, as if born on a torrent of unintelligible indignation. And Arthur and I were left in the clear, four-flamed light alone. For a while we sat in silence. He shook his head at my cigarette case, and I lit a cigarette. Presently he fidgeted in his chair and poked his head forward into the light. He paused to rise and shut again the shut door. How long will you be? he said, standing by the table. I laughed. Oh, it's not that, he said in some confusion. Of course I like to be with her. But it's not only that. The truth is, Withers, I don't care about leaving her too long with my aunt. I hesitated. He looked at me questioningly. Look here, Seaton, I said. You know well enough that I don't want to interfere in your affairs or to offer advice where it is not wanted. But don't you think perhaps you may not treat your aunt in quite the right way? As one gets old, you know, little give and take. I have an old godmother or something. She talks too. A little allowance, it does no harm. But hang it all, I'm no talker. He sat down with his hands in his pockets, and still with his eyes fixed almost incredulously on mine. How? he said. Well, my dear fellow, if I'm any judge, mind, I don't say that I am, I can't help thinking she thinks you don't care for her, and perhaps takes your silence for bad temper. She's been very decent to you, hasn't she? Decent? Oh, my God, said Seaton. I smoked on in silence, but he continued to look at me with that peculiar concentration I remembered of old. I don't think, perhaps, Withers, he began presently, I don't think you quite understand. Perhaps you're not quite our kind. You always did, just like the other fellows, guy me at school. You laughed at me that night you came to stay here, about the voices and all that. But I don't mind being laughed at, because I know. Know what? It was the same old system of dull question and evasive answer. I mean, I know what we see and hear is only the smallest fraction of what is. I know she lives quite out of this. She talks to you, but it's all make-believe. It's all a parlour game. She's not really with you, only pitting her outside wits against yours and enjoying the fooling. She's living on the inside, on what you're rotten without. That's what it is, a cannibal feast. 
She's a spider. It doesn't much matter what you call it. It means the same kind of thing. I tell you, Withers, she hates me, and you can scarcely dream of what that hatred means. I used to think I had an inkling of the reason. It's oceans deeper than that. It just lies behind, herself against myself. Why, after all, how much do we really understand of anything? We don't even know our own histories, and not a tenth, not a tenth of the reasons. What has life been to me? Nothing but a trap. And when one is set free, it only begins again. I thought you might understand, but you are on a different level, that's all. What on earth are you talking about? I said, half contemptuously in spite of myself. I mean what I say, he said gutturally. All this outside's only make-believe. But there, what's the good of talking? So far as this is concerned, I'm as good as done. You wait. Seaton blew out three of the candles, and leaving the vacant room in semi-darkness, we groped our way along the corridor to the drawing-room. There was a full moon stood shining in the long garden windows. Alice sat stooping at the door, with her hands clasped, looking out alone. Where is she? Seaton asked in a low tone. Alice looked up. Their eyes met in a kind of instantaneous understanding, and the door immediately afterwards opened behind us. Such a moon, said a voice that, once heard, remained unforgettably on the ear. A night for lovers, Mr. Withers, if ever there was one. Get a shawl, my dear Arthur, and take Alice for a little promenade. I dare say we old cronies will still manage to keep awake. Hasten, hasten, Romeo. Oh, my poor, poor Alice, how laggard a lover. Seaton returned with a shawl. They drifted out into the moonlight. My companion gazed after them till they were out of hearing turned to me gravely, and suddenly twisted her white face into such a convulsion of contemptuous amusement that I could only stare blankly in reply. "'Dear innocent children,' she said with inimitable unctuousness, "'well, well, Mr. Withers, we poor seasoned old creatures must move with the times. Do you sing?' I scouted the idea. Then you must listen to my playing. Chess. She clasped her forehead with both cramped hands. Chess is now completely beyond my poor wits. She sat down at the piano and ran her fingers in a flourish over the keys. What shall it be? How shall we capture them? Those passionate hearts. That first fine careless rapture. Poetry itself. She gazed softly into the garden a moment, and presently, with a shake of her body, began to play the opening bars of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. 
The piano was old and woolly. She played without music. The lamplight was rather dim. The moonbeams from the window lay across the keys. Her head was in shadow. And whether it was simply due to her personality or to some really occult skill in her playing, I cannot say. I only know that she gravely and deliberately set herself to satirise the beautiful music. It brooded on the air, disillusioned, charged with mockery and bitterness. I stood at the window. Far down the path I could see the white figure glimmering in that pool of colourless light. A few faint stars shone, and still that amazing woman behind me dragged out of the unwilling keys her wonderful grotesquerie of youth and love and beauty. It came to an end. I knew the player was watching me. Please, please go on, I murmured without turning. Please go on playing, Miss Seaton. No answer was returned to my rather fluttering sarcasm, but I knew in some indefinable way that I was being acutely scrutinised, when suddenly there followed a procession of quiet, plaintive chords which broke at last softly into the hymn, A Few More Years Shall Roll. I confess it held me spellbound. There is a wistful, strained, plagiant pathos in the tune, but beneath those masterly old hands it cried softly and bitterly, the solitude and desperate estrangement of the world. Arthur and his lady-love vanished from my thoughts. No one could put into a rather hackneyed old hymn-tune such an appeal who had never known the meaning of the words. Their meaning, anyhow, isn't commonplace. I turned very cautiously and glanced at the musician. She was leaning forward a little over the keys, so at the approach of my cautious glance she had but to turn her face into the thin flood of moonlight for every feature to become distinctly visible. And so, with the tune abruptly terminated, we steadfastly re regarded one another, and she broke into a chuckle of laughter. Not quite so seasoned as I supposed, Mr. Withers. I see you are a real lover of music. To me, it is too painful. It evokes too much thought. I could scarcely see her little glittering eyes under their penthouse lids. And now, she broke off crisply, tell me, as a man of the world, what do you think of my new niece? I was not a man of the world nor was much flattered in my stiff and dullish way of looking at things by being called one, and I could answer her without the least hesitation. I don't think, Miss Seaton, I'm much a judge of character. She's very charming. A brunette? I think I prefer dark women. And why? Consider, Mr. Withers. Dark hair, dark eyes, dark cloud. Dark night, dark vision, dark death, dark grave, dark, dark. Perhaps the climax would have rather thrilled Seaton, 
but I was too thick-skinned. I don't know much about all of that, I answered rather pompously. Broad daylight's difficult enough for most of us. Ah, she said, with a sly, inward burst of satirical laughter. And I suppose, I went on, a little nettled. It isn't the actual darkness one admires. It is the contrast of the skin, the colour of the eyes, and— and they're shining, just as, I went blundering on, too late to turn back, just as you only see the stars in the dark. It will be a long day without any evening. As for death and the grave, I don't suppose we shall much notice that. Arthur and his sweetheart were slowly returning along the dewy path. I believe in making the best of things. How very... Interesting, came the smooth answer. I see you are a philosopher, Mr. Withers. Hmm, as for death and the grave, I don't suppose we shall much notice that. Very interesting. And I'm sure, she added in a particularly suave voice, I profoundly hope so. She rose slowly from her stool. You will take pity on me again, I hope. You and I will get on famously. Kindred spirits. Elective affinities. And, of course, now that my nephew's going to leave me, now that his affections are centred on another, I shall be a very lonely old woman. Shall I not, Arthur? Seaton blinked stupidly. I didn't hear what you said, aunt. I was telling our dear friend, Arthur, that when you are gone, I shall be a very lonely old woman. Oh, I don't think so, he said in a strange voice. He means, Mr. Withers, he means, my dear child, she said, sweeping her eyes over Alice. He means that I shall have memory for company, heavenly memory, the ghosts of other days, sentimental boy. Did you enjoy our music, Alice? Did I really stir that youthful heart? Oh, 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 continued the horrible old creature. You billers and cooers, I have been listening to such flatteries. Such confessions. Beware, beware, Arthur. There's many a slip. She rolled her little eyes at me. She shrugged her shoulders at Alice and gazed an instant stonily into her nephew's face. I held out my hand. Good night, good night, she cried. He that fights and runs away. Ah, good night, Mr. Withers. Come again soon. She thrust out her cheek at Alice, and we all three filed slowly out of the room. Black shadow darkened the porch and half the spreading sycamore. We walked without speaking up the dusty village street. Here and there a crimson window glowed. At the fork of the high road I said good-bye but I had hardly taken more than a dozen paces 
when a sudden impulse seized me. Seaton, I called. He turned in the moonlight. You have my address. If by any chance you know you should care to spend a week or two in town between this and the the day, we would be delighted to see you. Thank you, Withers. Thank you, he said in a low voice. I dare say, I waved my stick gallantly to Alice. I dare say that you will be doing some shopping. We could all meet, I added, laughing. Thank you. Thank you, Withers. Immensely, he repeated. And so we parted. But they were out of the jog-trot of my prosaic life. And being of a stolid and incurious nature, I left Seaton and his marriage and even his aunt to themselves in my memory, and scarcely gave a thought to them until one day I was walking up the strand again and past the flashing gloaming of the covered-in jeweller's shop, where I had accidentally encountered my old schoolfellow in the summer. It was one of those still close autumnal days after a rainy night. I cannot say why, but a vivid recollection returned to my mind of our meeting, and of how suppressed Seaton had seemed, and of how vainly he had endeavoured to appear assured and eager. He must be married by now, and had doubtless returned from his honeymoon, and I had clean forgotten my manners, had not sent a word of congratulation, nor, as I might well have done, and, as I knew he would have been immensely pleased at my doing, the ghost of a wedding present. On the other hand, I pleaded with myself, I had had no invitation. I paused at the corner of Trafalgar Square, and at the bidding of one of those caprices that occasionally seize on even an unimaginative mind, I suddenly ran after a green bus that was passing and found myself bound on a visit I had not in the least foreseen. All the colours of autumn were all over the village when I arrived. A beautiful late afternoon sunlight bathed thatch and meadow. But it was close and hot. A child, two dogs, a very old woman with a heavy basket I encountered. One or two incurious tradesmen, looked idly up as I passed by. It was all so rural and so still, my whimsical impulse had so much flagged, that for a while I hesitated to venture under the shadow of the sycamore tree to inquire after the happy pair. I deliberately passed by the faint blue gates and continued my walk under the high green and tufted wall. Hollyhocks had attained their topmost bud, and seeded in the little cottage gardens beyond. The Michaelmas daisies were in flower. A sweet, warm, aromatic smell of fading leaves was in the air. Beyond the cottages lay a field where cattle were grazing, and beyond I came to a little churchyard. Then the road wound on, pathless and houseless, among gorse and bracken. I turned impatiently, and walked quickly back to the house and rang the bell. The rather colourless elderly woman who answered my inquiry informed me that Miss Seaton was at home, as if only taciturnity forbade her from adding, 
but she doesn't want to see you. Might I, do you think, have Mr. Arthur's address? I said. She looked at me in quiet astonishment, as if for an explanation. Not the faintest of smiles came into her thin face. I will tell Miss Seaton, she said after a pause. Please walk in. She showed me into the dingy, undusted drawing-room, filled with evening sunshine and the green-dyed light that penetrated the leaves overhanging the long French windows. I sat down and waited on and on, occasionally aware of a creaking footfall overhead. At last the door opened a little, and the great face I had once known peered round at me for it was enormously changed, mainly, I think, because the old eyes had rather suddenly failed, and so kind of stillness and darkness laid over its calm and wrinkled pallor. "'Who is it?' she asked. I explained myself and told her the occasion of my visit. She came in and shut the door carefully after her, and— though the fumbling was scarcely perceptible, groped her way to a chair. She had on an old dressing-gown, like a cassock, of a patterned cinnamon colour. "'What is it you want?' she said, seating herself and lifting her blank face to mine. "'Might I just have Arthur's address?' I said, deferentially. "'I am so sorry to have disturbed you.' Mm, you've come to see my nephew? Not necessarily to see him, only to hear how he is, and of course Mrs. Seaton too. I'm afraid my silence must have appeared. He hasn't noticed your silence, croaked the old voice out of the great mask. Besides, there isn't any Mrs. Seaton. Ah, then, I answered. After a momentary pause, I have not seemed so black as I painted myself. And how is Miss Outram? She's gone into Yorkshire, answered Seaton's aunt. And Arthur too? She did not reply, but simply sat blinking at me with lifted chin as if listening, but certainly not for what I might have to say. I began to feel rather at a loss. "'You were no close friend of my nephew's, Mr. Smithers,' she said presently. "'No,' I answered, welcoming the cue. "'And yet, do you know, Miss Seaton, he is one of the very few of my old schoolfellows I have come across in the last few years. And I suppose as one gets older, one begins to value old associations.' My voice seemed to trail off into a vacuum. I thought Miss Outram, I hastily began again, a particularly charming girl. I hope they are both quite well. Still the old face solemnly blinked at me in silence. You must find it very lonely, Miss Seaton, with Arthur away. I was never lonely in my life, she said sourly. I don't look to flesh and blood for my company. When you've got to be my age, Mr. Smithers, which God forbid. 
you find life a very different affair from what you seem to think it is now. You won't seek company then, I'll be bound. It's thrust on you. Her face edged round into the clear green light, and her eyes, as it were, groped over my vacant, disconcerted face. I dare say now, she said, composing her mouth. I dare say my nephew told you a good many tarradiddles in his time. Oh yes, a good many, eh? He was always a liar. What now did he say of me? Tell me now. She leaned forward as far as she could, trembling with an ingratiating smile. I think he is rather superstitious, I said coldly. But honestly, I have a very poor memory, Miss Seaton. Why? she said. I haven't. The engagement hasn't been broken off, I hope. Well, between you and me, she said, shrinking up with an immensely confidential grimace. It has. I'm sure I'm very sorry to hear it. And where is Arthur? Eh? Where is Arthur? We faced each other mutely along the dead, old, bygone furniture. Past all my scrutiny was that large, flat, grey, cryptic countenance. And then suddenly, our eyes for the first time really met. In some indescribable way, out of that thickly-lidded obscurity, a far small something stooped and looked out at me for a mere instant of time that seemed of almost intolerable protraction. Involuntarily I blinked and shook my head. She muttered something with a great rapidity, but inarticulately, and rose and hobbled to the door. I thought I heard, mingled in with broken mutterings, something about tea. Please, please don't trouble, I began, but could say no more, for the door was already shut between us. I stood and looked out on the long-neglected garden. I could just see the bright greenness of Seaton's old tadpole pond. I wandered about the room. Dusk began to gather. The last birds in that dense shadowiness of trees had ceased to sing and not a sound was to be heard in the house. I waited on and on, vainly speculating. I even attempted to ring the bell, but the wire was broken, and only jangled loosely at my efforts. I hesitated, unwilling to call or to venture out, and yet more unwilling to linger on, waiting for a tea that promised to be an exceedingly comfortless supper. And as the darkness drew down, a feeling of the utmost unease and disquietude came over me. All my talks with Seaton returned on me with a sudden enriched meaning. I recalled again his face as we stood hanging over the staircase, listening in the small hours to the inexplicable stirrings of the night. There were no candles in the room. Every minute of the autumnal darkness deepened. 
I cautiously opened the door and listened again, and with some little dismay withdrew, for I was uncertain of my way out. I even tried the garden, but was confronted under a veritable thicket of foliage by a padlocked gate. It would be a little too ignominious to be caught scaling a friend's garden fence. Cautiously returning into the still and musty drawing-room, I took out my watch and gave the incredible old woman ten minutes in which to reappear, and when that tedious ten minutes had ticked by, I could scarcely distinguish its hands. I determined to wait no longer, drew open the door, and trusting to my sense of direction, groped my way through the corridor that I vaguely remembered led to the front of the house. I mounted three or four stairs, and lifting a heavy curtain, I found myself facing the starry fanlight of the porch. Hence I glanced into the gloom of the dining-room. My fingers were on the latch of the outer door, when I heard a faint stirring in the darkness above the hall. I looked up and became conscious of, rather than saw, the huddled old figure looking down on me. There was an immense hushed pause. Then, Arthur, Arthur, whispered in an inexpressibly peevish, rasping voice. Is that you? Is that you, Arthur? I can scarcely say why, but the question horribly startled me. No conceivable answer occurred to me. With head craned back, hand clenched on my umbrella, I continued to stare up into the gloom in this fatuous confrontation. Oh, oh, the voice croaked. It's you, is it? That disgusting man. Go away out. Go away out. Hesitating no longer, I caught open the door and, slamming it behind me, ran out into the garden under the gigantic old sycamore and so out at the open gate. I found myself halfway up the village street before I stopped running. The local butcher was sitting in his shop reading a piece of newspaper by the light of a small oil lamp. I crossed the road and inquired the way to the station, and, after he had with minute and needless care directed me, I asked casually if Mr. Arthur Seaton still lived with his aunt at the big house just beyond the village. He poked his head in at the little parlour door. There's a gentleman inquiring after young Mr. Seaton, Milly, he said. He's dead, ain't he? Why, yes, bless you, replied a cheerful voice from within. Dead and buried these three months or more, young Mr. Seaton. And just before he was to be married, don't you know? Don't you remember, Bob? I saw a fair young woman's face peer over the muslin of the little door at me. Thank you, I replied. Then I shall go straight on. That's it, sir. Past the pond, bear up the hill, and then there's the station lights before your eyes. We looked intelligently into each other's faces in the beam of the smoky lamp but not one of the many questions in my mind could I put into words. 
and again I paused, irresolutely a few paces further on. "'Twas not, I fancy, merely a foolish apprehension of what the raw-boned butcher might think that prevented my going back to see if I could find Seaton's grave in the benighted churchyard. There was precious little use in pottering about in the muddy dark merely to find where he was buried, and yet I felt a little uneasy. My rather horrible thought was that, so far as I was concerned, one of his esteemed few friends, he had never been much better than buried in my mind. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Jim. Hi, I'm Mesa. And I'm Wayne. And we're going to talk about Seton's aunt. Uh, short, aunt. Uh, novelette, not aunt. novella? Uh, aunt? Seton's aunt. Aunt. Uh, yes. Novella, novelette, something like that, from the London Mercury, uh, April 1922. This is by Walter de la Mer. Uh, this story, I think, is has any reputation because of Lovecraft uh, liking it. And that's how I heard about it. And I think it's pretty damn interesting. Pretty damn interesting. Is it a ghost story? Well, Robert Aikman thought so, because he included it in the Fontana book of great ghost stories, hmm. of which he, uh, he edited eight volumes in the end of what he considered to be the, the finest ghost stories written. Hmm. Um, and it was in the very first volume. So he, he had a high opinion of it, but... Uh, um, I think you can see its influence on his work, certainly. So I see sort of Dillamere as coming in because of the missing link, say, between kind of your M.R. James's, E.F. Benson's, H.R. Wakefield's, and then your modern masters like Aikman, Ramsey Campbell, Thomas Ligotti. Hmm. Is it a vampire story? That's what I was thinking. It was sort of a supernatural vampire type story. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think it kind of uh, get, could could give that in intimation or interpretation, but uh, um, I tend to agree with uh, with Jim in that it's uh, it really is a ghost story. Uh, it's kind of ambiguous and left ambiguous, so that I think you don't you don't actually get from the text that it it is absolutely. You know, you don't know if it's all in uh, the characters' minds or not. You know, so it's ambiguous that way. But I think it was intended as, and ends up being a very successful ghost story. Is it a witchcraft story? Well, it depends how you define witchcraft. I mean, from the hints we get in the text, uh, Seton's aunt is supposedly uh, bringing in spirits. <laughs> So that, that's necromancy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there does seem to be other, an element of vampirism, or, but whether that's more kind of just general predatory behavior is a, <laughs> or psychic vampirism, we, something we can probably can touch on and discuss later. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I, got, I, got, uh, I, I can see why Lovecraft loved it, because it is, it is all about mood and sustaining a mood. Um, yeah, very it's very atmospheric and, and 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 creepy, and it kind of sneaks up on you too. Mm. Being, uh, it's like it it starts out uh, very 
uh, very mundane, very everyday. And then the, the creepiness kind of just sneaks in. But <laughs> so by the time you're like halfway through it, it's like, whoa, you know, it's just, you know, definitely chills up and down the spine material. I've got, I've got Lovecraft's what he wrote about it here. Uh, deserving of distinguished notice as a forceful craftsman to whom an unseen mystic world is even, ever a close and vital reality is the poet Walter de la Mer, whose haunting verse and exquisite prose alike bear consistent traces of strange vision reaching deeply into veiled spheres of beauty and, and terrible and forbidden dimensions of being. Wow. What a sentence. <laughs> That's cool. I, I need uh, <laughs> Wayne to record that so I, it'll be my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs> about this, There's another Lovecraft quote from one of his letters uh-huh. um, where he's talking about his own writing. And um, I think it was a letter to Clark Ashton Smith, but uh, the quote roughly goes along. Says, I'm less interested in writing a story about uh, an ancient castle under which there is a conclave of demons. I'm more interested in the idea that there are rumors about an ancient castle, mm. and those rumors are that there's a conclave of demons be- beneath it. Ah. And I think Seaton's and I see why it would appeal to him mm. so strongly, although Lovecraft generally didn't go for ambiguity. I think that's fair to say. You know, his horrors are very definitely real and there, and you know, there's no... Um, tr- you know, truckle with psychological fudging of the matter in case, you know, people want to run off and go, oh, I don't want to read the ghost story. You know, Lovecraft, no, look, there's Cthulhu, deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's... Yeah. But um, with Seton's aunt, I think what probably appealed to him about it is it says that sense of mood, but it also, I think, it captures very well the um, atmosphere of, like real life ghost stories of sort of those strange stories you could actually hear from another person. And there's nothing in it per se that nothing happens to sort of tip you over the skeptical abyss. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean, no one sees a ghost. There's a feeling of being haunted and a suggestion of you're imagining there are ghosts there, but you, these, you never have to, um, sort of, you know, really struggle with the weight of disbelief. But at the same time, it, you get the all the terror as if there was a ghost or a witch or a monster. Monster. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Uh, I, he actually did say a little bit about Seton's aunt in this essay, uh, Supernatural Horror Literature. I mean, it's in part of a sentence. You know, the rest is for other other parts of the sentence are for other stories. But it goes like this. Of the shorter tales of which several volumes exist, many are unforgettable for their command of fears, fears and sorcery's darkest ramifications, notably Seton's Ant, in which there lowers a noxious background of malignant vampirism. So he's definitely mm. falling on the vampirism side. And that's mm. that's the end of it for Seton's Ant in here. But uh, in listening, I listened to the story, I think, five times, which is a lot. Um, <laughs> and... And then I watched the YouTube uh, 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 video from uh, 1983, Shades of Darkness. Did you guys watch that? Yeah, oh, yes. Yeah, yes. I saw that this morning. That I found that re- remarkable through uh, about 
nine tenths of it. Yep. They were they were remarkably close to the book. I yep. mean, they were they were almost like they they just you know mimeographed the book and that here's the script. But but when they got to the end, they did a big switcheroo and mm-hmm. changed the ending. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it ended up meaning the same thing, but mm. they just like switched uh, switched the roles of two of the characters for some inexplicable reason. Oh, but I did. Uh, yeah, I like the way you put that. Uh, switched the yeah, roles because I, I didn't even think of that. I, I thought they just changed the ending, but they did. They switched. Mm-hmm. Me too. Mm. Um, that uh, the the only other change, I mean, that some of the dialogue was directly a, a lot of the dialogue was directly lifted from the book. Yeah, um, and in in order too. So yeah, it, it was pretty well done. I mean, it, it's it's interesting, and it, I always like to look at adaptation because they it's people interpreting right what's going on. If you do see a stage play or a movie or whatever, people have to make interpretive decisions as to what's going on. The only major change to the plot um, was to have the uh, girl Alice show up as a, a youth. And they put mm-hmm. her in the scene with the horse at the beginning. Mm. Um, and she seems pretty life, like she had a lot more life to her at the beginning. Yes. Like, and that's interesting, that. right? How, yeah. how does, what's, I mean, what's going on? I thought, I thought the casting was pretty good, especially mm-hmm. with the ant. What a role, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, that would be a, a role of a lifetime. It's kind of a shame nobody has heard of this show. Um, because she really does a lot of work. The only thing they didn't show of her in that is her eating. She never ate, which in the book she eats constantly, right? Yeah. And in the book, is she's described as being like you know a huge like mountain of a woman mm-hmm. as well. Whereas here we had a um, you know someone of a more kind of almost like doll like yes uh, sort of a figure, uh, and that, but that worked quite. As well, the sort of you know that thin and hungry look. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Her hair is the other thing that they sort of screwed up on. They gave her a wig, right in the in the adaptation, um, and we see it on uh, a mannequin's head. Um, and uh, I, I much prefer the idea that it was natural. <laughs> now, the thing is, is in the story, it's entirely possible that it's fake, right? But if you show it being fake, you're making a, a decision there. And uh, having her with this very dark hair, and she has all this history. Every part of the house has all this history. Um, this is very reminiscent of things that I would think <laughs> as a youth, you know, and people you meet, and scenes yep. how intense they are as, as children and how people change. It's It's got a hell of a lot of things going on in it. And one of the things I picked up on, um, I think in my fourth listen through, is uh, the number of a number of parallel things that are happening, things that are happening in the first meeting and and the second meeting, or at the school and then uh, at the house, or you know in in on the strand and in the school, and this is I think a, a story that can be studied to see what a brilliant job he's done to create this atmosphere of of yeah what did you say mr jim right tipping you bring you to the edge but not throwing you over the abyss very much so it's kind of i think that makes it creepier because it does that it feels like an actual memoir 
mm, rather yeah. than the ghost story. It has that sort of plausibility to it. Of, yeah. And, uh, and there's yeah. that sort of thing of meeting someone who disconcerts you for reasons you can't exactly put your finger on, but you sort of, <laughs> you're wary of, for, you know, for, for no good reason. Withers, Withers is, uh, I didn't think, I, I was trying to figure out, like, why is he telling the story? But I think this could be like a chapter in a memoir, you know. There was this strange kid in my school. Um, I met him later on in life. And instead of assembling his whole life chronologically, he's just assembling it by, you know, persons. And uh, in that way of looking at it, he doesn't come across as a very good person, Withers. Um, he doesn't. He comes which, across better than the the other kids, the other boys at his school, I guess, but not very good. And then I was thinking about how he's kind of a shit. Um, and then Seton's he's not he's not a horrible person, but he's not perfect. And then I was thinking, well, maybe this aunt is actually very moral. Like, what does she do wrong that gives her all these? Well, it's, it's pretty, I think I think she does pretty much everything wrong. Uh, <laughs> they leave it they leave it ambiguous. Yes. Uh, as, as to you know, is she really uh, uh, in league with the devil? Is she a, a psychic vampire? Is she or is she just a huge colossal colossal biatch? You know, and you, you <laughs> never you you never you never really get to know. But either way. You don't like her. She's, uh, you know, she's definitely not. But we're not seeing a, it from we're well, seeing it from uh, kind of a shit's point of view, right? So, yeah, but that's not true. But but even her words, like she calls her her nephew a, a creature. Yes, yes. And she talks yeah. about him in right in front of him as a thing that barely exists and isn't even worth her attention. Well, you know? uh, well, I, I think the creature is right, but I don't I don't know that it barely exists. Well, is. she she says he is he reminds something like he reminds me of. The dust that we all oh, are, yes. are, are oh, going yes. to be. She does say so, that. Yeah. Okay. So she is, she is demonstrating what she's like. I think. Uh, yeah. And I was thinking, like, why she act that way? Like, what's wrong with this lady, right? She's a prick. That's why. <laughs> either <laughs> well, that, she, either yeah. that, or she's in league with the devil. You know. Well, well the thing is, what I thought both. is basically she is a monster. Yeah. Me too. Not possibly in every sense of the word, but certainly in. Any sense of the word you care to choose. Uh, uh. <laughs> right. Uh, because, you know, she is a horrible person. I think even as a, as a boy, he picks up on this spite of the way she plays chess with him, then knocks the board over. These are little mind games. I want to I wanna, yeah. I look at that, okay? So <clears throat> I, 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 I started thinking maybe she's not the the monster that everybody's painting her as i mean that's the the, the funny thing is, is this is not seaton's story it's he's not the title right he's she's the title and she actually shows up in more scenes than he does now we get more time with seaton but almost all of the focus is on her it, it, withers is not really important he's just the viewpoint to her we've got uh seaton who uh who when he talks about things at school he's always talking about my aunt right or my aunt and aunt. uh and there's something going like she's an extraordinary figure even if you you know think she's uh, a monster which i think is very justifiable 
at least one way of looking at it. But if she, if this is a non-supernatural story, if this was a real memoir, we would have to say something like, well, what's going, why is she like this, right? Well, what mm. made a person like this? And one of the things I ended up thinking is like, maybe she just read way too much Lovecraft when she was young. <laughs> <laughs> and it really affected her. And she's not going around being immoral to everybody. I mean, even... Withers is a fucker. Like he's he's basically saying, we uh, we English, uh, not you sallow-skinned uh, foreigner, foreigner Pongo, ape, right monkey, uh, and he's he's kind to him in a certain sense, but notice he gets bribed every time, right? The first yeah. time, it's uh, he's given some jam, and then the second mm-hmm. time. He's given lunch, uh, you know, an expensive wine and a lunch in an Italian restaurant. And yeah, then, what I what I got from what I got from that was uh, he's not really um, he's not really a villain or a creep or anything. He, he's I think he, you mentioned before you said he was the uh, he's the point of view to point yes. to you know the main character, which I agree with, and I think you're supposed to uh, relate to him as being the everyman. Uh, you know, he's just like me. Yeah. Uh, the 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 difference there is that um, the author does not uh, paint this character with any you know faults, um, uh, heroics or superiority. He doesn't make him like the everyman just like you, who's a great guy. Mm. He's like. He's the everyman who's just like you, who's like, you know, uh, self-involved and, uh, and a shit and you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? I so, mean, none so of I don't, these I don't people are monsters in the technical sense, right? She, she raises a kid. Uh, did she kill him? I think she did. I think that's I think she one did. way of definitely, you know, we're, we're supposed to take away the possibility that she did kill him, but. Uh, in rereading, I just I'm thinking maybe that's not what's going on. And when you when you said the roles were switched in the in the adaptation, that just lit up all sorts of bells and uh, sparks in my brain because it's it's really interesting. We let's talk about that chess scene. Let's see if I can find it. Um, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, okay, so Seton's aunt was wearing an extraordinary kind of lace jacket when we sidled sheepishly into the drawing room together. She greeted me with a heavy and protracted smile and bade me bring a chair close to the little table. I hope Arthur has made you feel at home, she said, as she handed me a cup in her crooked hand. He don't talk much to me, but then I'm an old woman. You must come again with her, (laughs) she gets his name wrong, and draw him out of his shell, you old snail. She wagged her head at Seton, who sat munching cake and watching her intently. So that seems like an insult, right? Calling him a snail. Yep. But his room is full of cages, right, for animals. Um, he loves nothing more than to be down at the uh, pond where he's got all these, uh, you know, slimy creatures. Um you old snail. It sounds like an insult, but she's calling him what he loves, right? Hmm. And then let's let's continue here. And we must correspond, perhaps. She nearly shuts her eyes at me. You must write and tell me everything behind the creature's back. Now, 
that is hilarious in a certain sense. She's saying, you have to tell me uh, secretly what he's doing, but he's right there in the room. So this could be flaunting like she's an asshole saying, I have massive power and I can I can say I'm going to whip you in two weeks and uh, you, there's nothing you can do about it. Or that's a, that, that's that's a kind of the whole the whole one of the outline points of it, I think, is that um, you, you really don't know if uh, if it's just a dysfunctional family. Mm. That, uh, it's definitely that, uh, dysfunctional or, uh, or strange. But you don't know if that's the extent of it or it are, are all uh, Seton's uh, fears and uh, all his fear and trembling uh, and trepidation of her is that based is that a basis for in reality or not and you just don't know you know you don't know but uh, they definitely a, a dysfunctional relationship there that you know that we're kind of eavesdropping on well I think you know boys are awkward and you know they have Mr. Jim Moon can speak to this more but the the whole sending kids away to school is a really weird thing but let me finish this this paragraph about the about the chess because I I, th- I think this chess scene is really interesting when compared to a later chess scene um, I confess I found her rather disquieting company the evening drew on. Lamps were brought by a man with a nondescript face and very quiet footsteps. Seaton was told to bring out the chessmen, and we played a game, she and I, with her big chin thrust over the board at every move as she gloated over the pieces and occasionally croaked, check. After which she would sit back, inscrutably staring at me, but the game was never finished. She simply hemmed me defenselessly in with a cloud of men that held me impotent, and yet one and all refused to administer my poor flustered old king a merciful coup de gras. So she's toying with him is what we're supposed to take away from that, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I teach my students chess a lot. <laughs> and the thing is, is um, sometimes it seems like I'm toying with them, but actually I just can't get into the right maneuver. Like I'm not just because I'm teaching them, right? And I can't get into the right maneuver to to get the coup de gras because the, of the way they've, you know, sort of screwed up their own placement. But you know, in in a way, I find him and the ant like I um they're 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 quite parallel to yes, me. Yes, yes, very and, much and, so. And 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 I think that Arthur chose him as a friend partly because there was some sort of something of his aunt there, but that that he was trying to like maybe make friends with or or find something that he could hold on to that wasn't bewildering and that wasn't made him crazy and that you know that he could find himself there where he can't with his aunt mm-hmm. and 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 i find that the aunt actually what you're saying did think of him somewhat as as someone that she wasn't toying with as much as kind of par- sparring with a little bit yeah, well, I'm going to keep reading this because it's very illuminating, I think. There's another scene just like this that is not as obvious. Like, I didn't even notice it the first two times, I think, listening. There, she said, as the clock struck ten, a drawn game. Withers, we are very evenly matched. A very credible defense, Withers. You know your room. So that, that sentence, you know your room. What she's actually doing is complimenting him, his chess maneuvering, right? Not, uh, or, or maybe he's, she's talking about her, his bedroom, right? 
there's supper on a tray in the dining room. It's un, it's a little ambiguous, I think. Don't let the creature overeat himself. Um, again, he's right in the room, so it sounds like an insult, but maybe it's not, or maybe she doesn't see it that way. The gong will sound three quarters of an hour before a punctual breakfast. She held out her cheek to Seton, and he kissed it with obvious perfunctoriness. With me, she shook hands. An excellent game, she said cordially, but my memory is poor, and she swept the pieces helter-skelter into the box. Well, her memory is poor in that she can't remember his name sometimes, right? The results will never be known. She raised her great head far back, eh? Now, obviously, that is, (laughs) I think, her memory's not that bad. No, it's not. But uh, also sort of symbolic for the story, I think. And then it was a kind of challenge, and I could only murmur, oh, I was absolutely in a hole, you know, when she burst out laughing and waved us both out of the room. That she, other than the way she's described, I don't see any immoral behavior unnecessarily. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's so, so much immoral, but you, you mentioned uh, when she was playing chess with him, she uh, she was like toying with him. I'm looking for the line right now uh, where she here it is. She simply <clears throat> hemmed me defenselessly, mm-hmm. defenselessly, and with a cloud of men that held me impotent. And yet one and all refused to administer my poor flustered old king a merciful coup de grace. That's how she treats her her nephew. Right. You know, that's right. that's also how she treats uh, um, Alice? You know, this guy, whatever his name is. The, um, the Withers. Yeah. Mm. Or Johnson, Johnson <laughs> as, he's, yeah. as he's referred to in that's, one paragraph. Uh, that, uh, Smithers, Wither. Uh, yeah. Yeah. She's she, she just, uh, and, and that's, that to me seems, uh, her forgetting his name all the time, that seems to me another, that's another dig, you know, that's yeah. another, that's another purposeful expression of, of her, um, uh, you know, lack well, of Well, Bill, I completely disagree with you because uh, sometimes <laughs> people forget people's names, especially when they get older. <laughs> That's why I have well, my I, students I write their names on the top of their paper so I can look over and see what their name is. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's tapping into something very British mm. because here's it's another bit where uh, Withers and Seaton's aunt are mirrored is that as a narrator, Wither is very dishonest. Yes. Um, because he he passes judgment on all and sundry, but when it comes down to it, I mean he you know what I mean, he he has his own observations of the ant. He calls her, you know, this hideous old beast and this hideous old creature, and he's very disturbed by her. But when he talks to Seaton, it's kind of she's not such a bad old stick. Why are you going right, on about her? Right. And that's I don't think that's sort of malice on his part, but that's just kind of that's how he's brought up to behave. He's yep. in his own words a rather dull, stolid chap, and he sort of he's not much of a talker, so he just says what's expected. And that is, you know, it's kind of he has this, you know, very public school sort of attitude of you know, life's a game, you play it fair, you don't take it too seriously, and you know, everyone's a jolly good sort, and you give them a benefit of doubt. Uh, even, you know, and this is often a mask for terrible bad behaviour. Um CF, our recent government of ex-public school boys, who, uh, you know, have, uh, uh, you know, an appallingly cavalier attitude with the truth and just try and 
come across as jolly good eggs and a bit bumbling. We don't really know what we're doing, but they're actually being very calculated. Um, Seton's aunt, on the other hand, she she knows all these sort of sort of foibles of behaviour, yeah. and every time she gets his name wrong, it's one, it's underlining, you are nothing to me. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's also, it's a test. It's like, dare you correct an old yeah. lady? No, she's definitely yeah. playing. She's definitely playing. Uh, <laughs> is this ma- malice, or is this just... She's just read too much Lovecraft. She's too aware. She's too self-aware. Like there's some, there's something definitely like uh, what I love about this story is that it could, if this was a true memoir and we were reading it, we would totally think of it as well. The narrator might be just like interpreting this stuff. Cause a lot of this stuff is, I mean, think of how, how the, the boys behave, right? Um, they sneak into her room and hide in her closet. Um, that's, that's breaking a taboo, right? I mean, if not a law, <laughs> you shouldn't do that. Not to your house, your, your, I mean, he wouldn't do that as an adult, right? Um, but that's how kids are. And, you know, she, she's, I think she's just too intellectual for her thing, but there's, there's a, for her own good, really. And that's why she's a miss, you know, um, uh, instead of a missus in this time when everybody's supposed to get married. Um, but let's, uh, I want to show you what struck me so hard later this is about halfway through the book um this is in the second meeting at the house listen to this we turned and walked slowly towards the house across whose windows i confess my own eyes too went restlessly wandering in search of its rather disconcerting inmate well the first time they went to the house uh they saw her standing in the window the second time they're looking for her, right, to see mm-hmm. see see her again. There was a pathetic look of draggledness, of want of means and care, rust and overgrowth and faded paint. Seton's aunt, a little to my relief, did not share our meal. Seton carved the cold meat and dispatched a heaped-up plate by the elderly servant from his aunt's for his aunt's private consumption. So he's actually giving his aunt her food, to, you know, to have it taken up to the room. We talked a little in half-suppressed tones and sipped a bottle of Madeira, which Seton had rather heedfully fetched out from the great mahogany sideboard. I played him a dull and effortless game of chess, yawning between the moves he generally made almost at haphazard and with no attention elsewhere engaged. Oh, sorry, and with attention elsewhere engaged. About five o'clock came the sound of a distant ring and Seton jumped up, overturning the board and so ending a game that might else have fatuously continued to this day and then he he's jumping up because uh his girlfriend is arriving right and he introduces him uh seaton uh withers to seaton's girlfriend alice right so actually what's happened there is the exact same thing happened right we have a chess match that will never end it will ne- the results will never be known. And it is told in a completely different way. There isn't uh, malice uh, and, you know, like she's toying with me because he's an equal, right, in a certain sense. And yet the it's the interpretation that makes the first one so sinister, right? She's toying me with me like I'm a spider in her web. And here 
it, he is actually re- recapitulating her own behavior. This he's actually turning into her, and he's actually like becoming more sympathetic to her in a way that see, uh, that withers, as you uh, who, who who said it? Um, the unreliable narrator. He's 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 lying when he says to Seton, you should be nicer to your old aunt, right? Who said that? Was that Monsieur, Mr. Jimmy? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> it's also another bit of, I think, dishonesty of where the later meeting with uh, Seton and Seton says, my aunt, I, I mean, we lost all our money. Right. And he, he suddenly out of the blue, he has this, and oh, I knew he'd been lying, that they never had any money anyway. Whereas from the evidence sort of presented, it's fairly obvious that the aunt has lived very well off Seton's inheritance and has spent the lot. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I'm I'm st- starting to totally disagree with this. Like, think she she she's been giving him a generous allowance, and she's certainly been eating a lot, right? Um, <laughs> but um, like, well, there's a there's a scene early on. Uh, when they're on their way back from the train, uh, not back, they're on their way from the train station to the house for the first time, and they stop at a chemist's. And what do they stop there to get? Rat poison. Why? <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I was I was wondering that, and it never, you know, it never came up again. But uh, that was the, that kind of sparked my interest is, too. Is like, is Seton trying to kill his aunt? Because if he is, it's not working, is it? Mm-mm. No. And it's not like, I mean, he was at a half-term holiday, so it's not like his aunt asked him to stop uh, when he comes back for some rat poison. She could have sent a servant for that if she needed some. That was for his own use, right? For his own thing. And we we, we know almost nothing about Seton, except that he's a kind of like his aunt. He's kind of all over the place. And there's another parallel that's astounding to me. It's like, it's right at the beginning as well. What's with the bangle? Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> What's going on? Well, like he's got a bangle, and then they they some boys steal it from him and heat it up and drop it down his neck. I assume that means the back of his shirt. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a uh, you know a schoolboy prank or whatever. Um, bangles are not commonly worn by English boys, are they, <laughs> Mr. Jimman? <laughs> I don't know. I've seen Jim wearing like three or four of them at a time lately. Yeah. <laughs> Only when he's pirating. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's one of those things that it's kind of school, you know, school boys do. I mean, our school, there was suddenly a craze for everyone wanting to wear a ring. Weird. Um, uh, you, you know what I mean? Uh, and there was a, a, a craze for wearing uh, like bangles. And it's, it's, it comes around cyclically to this day. Those uh, at my school, it was a, a weird craze for wearing a rubber band as a bangle at one stage, and but there's all various things I've come across. And it's one of those, it's one of those little affectations I think children do as kind of um, to wear a bit of jewellery because it makes you more adult and look a bit glamorous. And it, I think it was kind of a an attempt at sort of to be interesting and mm. sort of opulent, maybe. Um, but I've asked for the business of heating up the bang the bangle. It's not a prank. I think you should call it what it is. It's bullying. Oh yes, definitely. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, uh, um, but you know, it's one of those things. It's kind of uh, our narrator always stops short of actually 
really just spelling out saying, well, actually, we were actually perfectly horrid to him, you know, for no good reason at all, other than we thought, uh, the the terrible phrase that was in circus, he had a touch of the tar brush to him. He wasn't quite English enough, Mm -hmm. you know, um, (laughs) he wasn't white enough. Uh, there was something, you know, and, and the bangle, to me, that kind of, it was, you know, him trying to be kind of, um, I don't know, a bit grown up, a bit debonair, but they see it as another bit of foreignness, a bit gypsy yes, wearing jewellery. Yes, right? Yeah. yeah. Now, the thing is, is that's paralleled uh, pretty close to the end um, by something that's going on with the, the, um, the aunt. Uh, aunt. I can scarcely describe what the curious ruminations I led uh, I led the way into the faded I can scarcely describe with what curious ruminations I led the way into the faded heavy aired dining room with its indefinable old creature <laughs> leaning weightily on my arm now he's calling her a creature that large flat bracelet on the yellow laced wrist she wears one too mm-hmm he is actually, he's almost like, uh, the reason Withers is, oh no, Withers, Seton is so strange, and Seton's aunt is so strange, I think, is because they are isolated, right? They're, uh, you know, his mom's dead, his dad's dead. They're out on the edge of uh, a community. Um, she doesn't, she says she loves the Strand. We only ever see her at the, um, at the uh, home. Um but she's she's a a maiden aunt, right? Obviously, um, f- very thoughtful, and she's raising this kid who's not hers. Maybe the relationship is not even aunt. Um, we're we I think we're supposed to see her as a malevolent creature, but it it reminds me of like you know I moved around a lot. You meet people and. Sometimes they're weird. They have, you know, they have weird household cultures that you've never seen before. And when you get to know them, like it makes a little more sense. But the food they eat is weird. I, I mean, well, lobster mayonnaise—is this a real thing? <laughs> I've never even heard of it. I mean, it sounds horrible. But you know, game sausages—I might try one. But all of that together, and what was a, there was a there is one monster in the story. It's the salad. <laughs> oh my god it's a monster mm. salad um <laughs> the attack of the lobster mayonnaise <laughs> it's uh, and she has a gargantuan ac- appetite right the, so she's not dainty i guess she's not she's not what we're expecting and and i think of like this poor kid right isolated he even says there's a scene uh where he's he's in the house and they're sneaking around and he, he goes into the bedroom he says oh i didn't think you'd be awake i can't get to sleep before midnight seaton says and and then he says well you can't scare me with your ghost stories um and if you do i'll punish you when we get back to school which is there's a real monstrous thing to do right mm-hmm. and then what's he say he says you know what i'll take it because you're here now um and 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 it's almost like at the beginning where he says, my aunt expects you, he said. She is very glad you are coming. She's sure to be quite decent to you, Withers. And the you is emphasized, mm-hmm. um, as in she's not decent to me. And 
my whole reading of this the first time is there's got to be something underneath the surface that I'm like, is this a is this whole story code for like um, for child sexual abuse or something like like what kind of a monster is this lady? And the more I looked at it and looked for evidence that she's a monster, the more I thought she's just a woman who's been sort of maligned by this kid who doesn't like her. He lies about he lies about uh, stuff. We know that uh, not Withers, but Seton lies about stuff. <coughs> Withers lies about stuff. Does she lie ever? She seems to be taking pains to be clear. And when when he says, she, you know, with the eye in the room, that's pretty. That's that that's probably the creepiest thing, right? The the eye in the room. And uh, although, I mean, one one of the questions I could have asked early on, Mr. Jim Moon, is this an Innsmouth story? <laughs> because there's a lot of fishy eyes in this story. I mean, it. it what is going on with the with the with the fish symbology, right? And the pond, like, or maybe this is um, there's another story that's from this period, uh, Fish Head, by Irvin S. Cobb, right? Which is about a guy who's mm. got a head for a, a fish for a head. Is this like he's a frog boy? Right? Is that why his skin is so sallow? <laughs> <laughs> is is that what happens to him, right? Is that he he went to the pond and they, they just don't speak of it, or did he go to the sea like like the uh, the younger brother of of uh, do we ever know Seton's aunt's maiden name or first name? No, no. no. Her brother, Miss Miss Seton, yeah, her younger brother, mm-hmm. whose room it was, right? Um, if if he's if he says that she's lost all the money. I don't know that I believe him. If this is her house, how is it his house? Right? I think she I think she might be being misread and that uh, I mean obviously there's some creepy stuff going on but the more I looked into it like the less I think she is the monster here. And in fact that parallelism that happens with her saying sort of really creepy things about people turning it to dust. Um, Seton says the same sort of stuff near the end. She, he's sort of turning into her with, she's got the bangles, right? He's got the bangles. Uh, he has, uh, something that he likes to eat. She has something that she likes to eat. Um, and I want to get to that. I think that's really, (laughs) that was the one where I was like, Oh my God, this is so interesting. Okay. But, um, uh, let me um let me see if I can find that that section where he starts talking like her. It's when they start talking about the garden and how um uh, how how does how's, I'll just find gardener. Oops, gardener. There we go. Um, we walked up the village street past the dingy apothecaries. Oh, right, the place where they got the rat poison. Uh, and the empty forge, and on my first visit, skirted into the house together, and instead of entering the by the front door, made our way into the green path in the garden at the back. A pale haze of cloud muffled the sun. The garden lay in a gray shimmer. Its old trees, its snapdragon faintly glittering walls, but there seemed now an air of neglect, where before had all been neat and methodical. There was a patch of shallowly dug soil and a worn-down spade leaning against a tree. Um, it's Is that like the grave? That he's digging for her. 
<laughs> there was an old broken wheelbarrow. The goddess of neglect was there. And when I heard Mr. Jim Moon say that sentence the first time and listening to it, I thought, oh, that's her, <laughs> right? The goddess of <laughs> neglect. But actually, um, when it was under her care, it was actually a beautiful garden, and she actually points points that out um, at one point. You ain't much of a gardener, Seton, I said with a sigh of ease. I think, do you know, I like it best like this, said Seton. We haven't any gardener now, of course, can't afford it. He stood staring at the little dark square of freshly turned earth. And it always seemed to me, he went on ruminatingly, that after all, we are nothing better than interlopers on the earth, disfiguring and staining wherever we go. I know it's shocking blasphemy to say so, but then it's different here, you see. We are farther away. What the hell does that mean? It means they don't, they don't have to keep up uh, appearances because they're out in the sticks. That's what I think. I think the, mm. that's all that means. Is it? I just, I, I totally have the whole opposite view of this whole thing. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but, I, but I feel like it's, it's how he's feeling, like he's dying. He's dying. Yeah, is he and digging he his own grave there? Well, this whole thing is like, it's just withering away as he is dying. And, and so, his trying to get married is sort of his last, he's got the death last, wish. His, his, it, well, this is his it, last it, attempt to not die. Dying. It's his. It's his way to try and get away, but he 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 can't. He everybody knows he can't, um, and he can't. Mm-hmm. And also the thing I prefer it this way. I mean, we know he's that he's kind of he's a key naturalist. I can understand why, like a wild garden. Mm-hmm. But to me, it always like a lot of things Seaton does. He's making the best of a bad situation, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and yeah. it's kind of well. Oh yeah, we can't afford the gardener. The garden is going to hell. But but yeah, I like wildness. You know yeah, what I mean? It's not how, so bad. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, good, good point. Um, and I yeah, they don't have a gardener because it's all got on lobster mayonnaise. Forklift trucks to do a goddamn hair. <laughs> I mean, you know, because basically the house is his inheritance. I'm I'm guessing like she's kind of you know he's you know just. Uh, her ward effectively yeah. mm-hmm. she's got the keys to his trust fund and she's just been helping herself for years but you know she she gives him a generous pocket money but she never gave him all the money no but you know at the same time you, she shouldn't be doing that in the first place as a responsible mm. you know it should mm-hmm. be the money is there in trust for when yep. he comes of age yeah. she but she shouldn't be spending it and just mm-hmm. because she sells some sort of scrap of conscience by, you know, giving him pocket money because she probably doesn't know, you know, and, you know, that's the way care. she works. No, she, she doesn't care. She's going to spend and, it until she can't, until she can't anymore. I know, like, in, we see the adult scene. He's got this extravagant streak as well. And yes, um, yes. With, with, with us, he's always commenting on it. But maybe, you know, Withers is just a bit of a tight fist, to be honest. I mean, the <laughs> saying in England, there's no one tighter than the arist- proper two aristocrats. They don't spend a bloody penny if they can afford <laughs> it. Um, but, you know, uh, but I, I think we, for, for him, it, it's not just extravagance. It's the fact that he thinks, well, why not? <laughs> you know, enjoy the money. The money's running out. It, all yeah. right, it has run out. I don't have long left. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why yeah. not? <laughs> when, but, when, but when he's a boy, though, he's, you notice 
he just has some nuts and fruit. Yeah. He isn't chowing down on all the huge spread. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I don't think he wants to get too fat personally <laughs> because she's sucking him dry. But, mm. um, but when you when you talked about tadpoles, I thought that was a very interesting thing. Mm-hmm. His favorite thing is tadpoles, and like a, a tadpole, it's not it's never going to make a tadpole. By the time it becomes a frog, it will be on land, but it, it's not. It's a, it's an amphibious creature that that is between being becoming what it's going to be, and 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 later, and and that's how I think he is. He's never going to become that frog. The, the ant croaks like she she wins the, <laughs> and she croaks her blah blah yeah maybe he would but he will never like and he knows that and that's why he's he kind of it feels so um uh close with them he he, he knows there's some um, there's uh, a, a word that comes up twice and it first time it comes up is um it, even before he's gone to visit the house, he's talking about how he an, actually came there. Um, I'll just read what I made in notes here. On one memorable occasion, uh, he went length. He went to the length of bestowing on me a whole pot of some outlandish mulberry-colored jelly that mm. had been duplicated in his term's supplies. So he got, uh, I don't know crate full of stuff to eat over the semester right out i got two containers of mulberry jam right at least that's what we're told the word mulberry comes up one more time in the story um and uh it, by the way in response to this mulberry jam which you know it's not that big a gift maybe it is back then in exuberance of my gratitude, I promise to spend the next half-term holiday with him at his aunt's house. So, the first time uh, he agrees to go, he's bribed with mulberry jam. The second time he agrees to go, he's bribed with um, uh, expensive Madeira at the uh, uh, Italian restaurant and uh, the food as well. Um, and Madeira shows up as the, at the house as well. It's a Spanish wine, is it? think it is spanish sweet wine madeira yes. yeah okay mm. um so he's easily bribed this withers or johnson um smithers <laughs> <laughs> and um mulberry comes up a second time at a meal and this is a really interesting interesting see this is the what the aunt actually says she sounds like a lovecraft character or somebody's read too much lovecraft she confided on us her views on a theme vaguely occupying at the moment, which I, I think is awesome, right? This could be the Trump presidency. could be anything, right? I suppose. all our, uh, uh, Occupying at the moment, I suppose, all our minds. We have barbarous institutions, and so must put up, I suppose, with a never-ending procession of fools, or of fools ad infinitum. Marriage, Mr. Withers, was instituted in the privacy of a garden, that's sort of an interesting thing to switch to, Refer- right? Reference to Eden. Yeah, and then sub rosa, as it were. Civilization flaunts it in the glare of day. Wow. Marriage should be a private thing in a garden, not, you know, out in public. The dull marry the poor, the rich, the effete, and so on. Our new Jerusalem is pr- peopled with naturals 
plain and colored at either end. So she didn't marry. She's a miss, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. She's definitely an, an odd duck. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, would, did, I would. I would. I wouldn't have gone out with her. <laughs> I can see why, right? I mean, she's she, she's not acting like the lady, right? She's acting. She's not playing her role properly. I detest folly. I detest still more if I'm if I must be frank, dear Arthur. That's the name of um of uh, Seton, right? Seton's first name. Yeah. Yep. Interesting. Mere cleverness. Mankind has simply become a ta- tailless host of uninstinctive animals. What the hell does that mean? It's very. It's just it's just, it's just an uh, an expression of her uh her overall philosophical pessimism. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's a, and, she, and here yeah, she she's makes sounding the, like Ligotti she, now. That's what you're saying. <laughs> yes, exactly. And and she makes the the mistake that all of uh all of us. Uh, pessimists make, which is you, you just get into this pissing contest with reality. How much mm. everything, how much everything sucks, and then the thing that it reveals most about isn't about, uh, you know, the reality of the universe or the world at large or your relationships or anything. It just, it it just reveals like, yeah, everything sucks. That's that's for sure. Uh, at least. Everything relating to you. I mean, that's that's the, that's the trap of pessimism, you know, and uh, and that's what her deal is. She's just, you know, spouting off about how everything sucks. We should never have taken to evolution, Mister Withers. Natural well, that's selection. Where the, that's where the tailless animal comes yes. in. Yes, mm. but it's also what I think. What she's driving at is that you know, um, once people accepted evolution. We said, oh, and I think there's a certain truth to it of that people go, oh, we are just animals. And God knows the whole idea of survival of the fittest has been used as an excuse and an intellectual justification for all manner of barbarity and horror in the last century. Absolutely. I mean, it's survival of the fittest is the, you know, the underlying principle of the, uh, so the meeting down at the docks, but of you know, the neoliberal <laughs> economics profit today at any cost. If you're making a profit, that's the only morality mm. you need. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Listen to this: natural selections, little gods and fishes. It, it almost it seems like non sequiturs, but it's not. It's atmosphere building, and she actually has a brain in her head much bigger than than either Seton or Withers, I think. Um, the deaf for the dumb. We should have used our brains. Intellectual pride, the ecclesiastics call it. And by brains, I mean, what do I mean, Alice? This is very, is she te- it's, it seems like she's teasing Alice now, right? Mm-hmm. She's toying with her. I mean, my dear child, as she laid two f- gross fingers on Alice's narrow sleeve, I mean courage. Consider it, Arthur. I read the scientific world is once more beginning to be afraid of spiritual agencies. Spiritual agencies that tap and actually float, bless their hearts. So this is um, an attack on spiritualism, I think. Yep. Uh, uh, now, is it an attack? Um, she, I think she thinks they're treating it lightly, or mm-hmm. maybe not. It's hard to say. And then she ends this whole... I don't want to say diatribe, but this whole 
It's almost like a wedding toast, right? <laughs> Weird, worst wedding toast ever. <laughs> I she's think... worst host ever. She is your room. My child brother died in it. Yes. Yeah. Sleep well. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> well, kids take things. The kids take things very, very seriously, right? And and just how how big a deal this one night he had in a house when he was a kid is you know it's 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 a big deal for him uh, but for her it wouldn't be a big deal and uh, i'll tell you about another theory i had to explain her weird behavior but this is the end of this paragraph i think just one more of those mulberries thank you okay so uh, i was like why is mulberry and mulberries are kind of unusual ever had mulberry jelly or jam anybody no um yeah you might have done god if i remember rightly mulberries often are called something else these days anyway yeah they they look like blackberries but long right Mm -hmm. they're they're they grow on trees rather than in bushes um they start uh they can be white and they can go to red and usually black and there's all sorts of uses and i i quite like the flavor i've I have it. a mulberry tree in my front yard. Do you? Oh, interesting. I never made jam because the squirrels always get there first. <laughs> um, Bastards. <laughs> well, maybe maybe you should try. Um, <laughs> there's should. there's as with almost all um, vegetation, there's all sorts of cultural associations with it, and uh, the one that I found is not actually in the cultural section of the Wikipedia entry. You know, the Van Gogh has a mulberry tree, in, you know, in his one of his paintings. And there's a nursery rhyme. Here we go around the mulberry bush. Right. Mm-hmm. Bob goes the weasel. Um, and there's a story from Babylonian mythology about a couple getting married under a tree. I thought, oh, that's very, all very interesting. But actually, it's in the scientific section that I found the most interesting thing. So um, what's mulberry bushes are so important for is actually silkworms. Yep. And Mm -hmm. silkworms are a symbol of uh, death and rebirth in a certain sense, Mm -hmm. right? They make a cocoon, they make a coffin for themselves. Well, they spin their own shroud. Yeah, that's right. Wow, ah. and they're they they can't eat anything else. Their whole diet consists of mulberry leaves, right? And Seton should, if he was, if he was smart, he should run away from this horrible ant if she is actually horrible. I, I I'm keeping both things in my mind. I see everything you guys see, right? That she's a monster. I just don't see. It is the only thing like one of the one of the really strange scenes in this story is when they're out in the yard oh, and they, they're actually out nearby and they see the horse. They get on the horse and start riding around and then they see the ant walking down the road and she doesn't take notice of them. And he says, mm-hmm. why? Why does she not take notice of us? And like, why doesn't she wave or say, get off that horse? What are you doing? Or whatever. Right. And he says something very strange. I, I don't actually have that in my notes here, but he says something like, "She never will, or she never would." Um, he says something like, "She she knows everything we're doing." 
Yeah, yep. and 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 that's where I was like, she's she she actually she seems to, it's almost like I, at one point I had a theory she was telepathic, and that what she does is she just asks questions, and then that gives the answer to her. And I was thinking, well, she does she know that the boy is buying rat poison? I think she knows. <laughs> On a certain level, right? <laughs> I mean, this is a kid. Have you seen his room? Right? It's full of, full of cages, right? It's covered in boxes. Um, and one of the things they did in the adaptation, uh, the video adaptation, was uh, instead of having it be a bangle, which, um, you know, is one thing, he was actually had a box with a worm in it, and. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he's feeding one animal to another or, you know, that whole thing can be a symbol as well. But when they when they changed the ending and the adaptation, I was really disappointed. I thought, oh, they don't get the story. Um, they're doing their own. As somebody pointed out they're doing their own thing with it. But actually, if you think of how the, the roles were reversed, if, if, if it was a switch, I think that's what you said, Wayne, the characters mm-hmm. were switched. Um, that does something really different. And um, there is a, I think you got to, I hope you will admit, people, that <laughs> something strange happens near the end. When mm-hmm. she says, uh, she says, you know, my mind is not as it was or something. And then she she goes off to tea. Um, he, and he's standing around waiting for her, like, to maybe come back. And then he just sneaks out of the house. No. But at some point around that, she calls him Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the that's the denouement of the whole story. <laughs> she uh, uh, she offers him tea and then splits and never comes back. So he goes looking for her. Finally, you know, he gets impatient, goes uh, tries to leave, uh, can't doesn't want to climb the garden wall, goes back into the house. Finally, determines to find her. Goes to find her, and. Uh, at, at the very end, I'm look, looking for that page now. Oh, um. uh, yeah. There was an immense hushed pause. Then Arthur, Arthur, whispered an inexpressively peevish, rasping voice. Is that you? Is that mm-hmm. you, Arthur? So yep. and what we is don't that a know. ghost? She's talking to the ghost of Arthur? That's, or That's the question. Or is that the, the what she thinks is the ghost of Arthur? Or... Uh, and is that belief founded or not? You know, well, it's uh, uh, and then uh, she reveals her personality once again at the end of that uh, exchange, where she realizes it's not the ghost of Arthur. It's oh, oh, the voice croaked. It's you, is it? That disgusting man. Get out. Go away. Get out. Uh, so then he gets pissed and leaves. Mm-hmm. But. Um, but yeah, that's the whole thing. Uh, uh, when he first meets her in that exchange, she doesn't even tell him that he's dead. You know, we don't, we sure don't know knows. that he's dead. I, I don't sure think she knows. knows. I'm sure she doesn't know. You know really? what? I, yeah. You know what I think? I think she killed him, but she doesn't even know. Like she's been, I, so, you know, when the second time he meets her, the second time, uh, Withers meets her, she's, she's aged, but she still looks pretty similar mm-hmm. because Arthur's still alive. Now, Arthur, He's getting married, and like we know, she's got a voracious appetite. Like she can't stop herself. So he's almost escaping. So he's getting like psychically fatter, mm-hmm. and she's like sucking away at him, and she's she's killed him. She doesn't know. So then the next time, uh, Weather sees her, she's completely changed now. She she can't see anymore. 
she looks she suddenly looks older because she's not feeding she's not eating he's she's lost her her source of food and now this is how i read it now she's dying but she she doesn't know that she's killed him and so she she doesn't know mm. well to someone who maybe converses with the dead no she uh, you know to me he's kind of uh, well that's uh, that's uh, uh, that's what i was thinking Arthur maybe. being alive or dead in our terms is that's something right. different to her but you know he's maybe still floating around the house and called up by her and she's still tormenting him but there's nothing to feed off anymore so uh going back to that scene with the horse and when she's walking walking by as if she doesn't see them it's it suddenly came into my mind um that it's it's almost like she's not wholly embodied right that she's she is the ghost herself um, that she haunts this house and the, and the yards around it. And she, with that eye, you know, that all seeing eye and mm-hmm. that, you know, he, she, he knows all her, th- um, she knows all Seton's thoughts and she seems to see into other people's minds and not care what their thoughts about stuff are. It's just, uh, you know, she says, is he first in his class? Right. Um, and the answer is eighth. Um, and maybe it's not even eighth, but by asking the question, she gets the answer. And then when she's wandering around, you know, the outside of the house, um, she's haunting the grounds. I was thinking like, it's almost like maybe if you apply not, you know, the rules of, of ghosts and vampires, but the rules of science, it's almost like she's in a superposition, you know, like you can't like, is she in her room or not? Right, so they go and check, and then you have this. Uh, I think the most horrific scene in the book, the most horrific scene in the book, is when they go into the room and they see the pile of clothes on the floor, and then the horror of horrors, the two shoes, two meters apart, pointing at each other on the floor. <laughs> like, what the fuck happened in here, right? Now, <laughs> that's when I'm and, like, and and where is this babe with no clothes on? Yeah, oh and my God. Uh, like, horrible. what, what, how, like, is she only a bundle of clothes with a head at the top, right? You know, like, or a hair <laughs> at the top. And and I was thinking, like, uh, two things are going on. One is, and th- th- that's the superposition that, like, uh, she's she's a vampire, she's a ghost. It's uh, uh, he's a ghost, she's a vampire. All, all she he's turning into a vampire. Like, what, what's going on? But two things are going on. She's in her room and she's not in his room. Her room. That those are the two possibilities. That either Schrodinger's cat is mm-hmm. you know, dead or alive. And you go and look. You open it up, and she's not there, right? But he heard oh. her go by earlier. And it's then Schrodinger's aunt. Right. <laughs> but by hiding in their own little closet, right, while she's while she comes back, um, that uh, suddenly like that that pile of clothes. She, She's just a human being who who's messy. She just came in, took off some clothes, right? Let her shoes sprawl all over the place, not like a neat little prim lady, right? She's just a human being. <laughs> Those are the two possibilities. She's a monster or she's just a human being. And it's almost like this story does both, right? Mm-hmm. You can read it as, yes, it's a, it's a horror story where she's a vampiric witch, who's um, sucking the life dry. And, and what is her success? Um, 
she can talk to ghosts, right? I was thinking about, there's a Lovecraft story that's a little bit like this, um, except instead of having three intruders in the house, this one has two, and that's um, The Terrible Old Man. I bet Misa hasn't read this story. You are correct. Uh, Mr. Jim Moon, can you... Tell us what happens in the terrible... Uh, basically, in the town of Innsbruck, there's this old boy who no one knows how old he is, um, who lives in a ramshackle little old cottage, um, and he's, you know, impossibly old, at least 100. And there's rumours he actually has some Spanish gold. Mm. Uh, and three fellows from out of town rock up. They hear these stories and think, well, we'll... Easy pickings. However, a... He does have Spanish gold, but he also has a lot more. He has the souls of people who have pissed him off in bottles. <laughs> <laughs> and he talks to them. When I grow up. And he talks to them. And they're, yes. they're all. They're, they're, I think they're all old shipmates of his that that um, betrayed him somehow. Or. Mm. And then at the end of the story, I think he has three new bottles, right? That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and. Like, imagine if you're that old, the terrible old man's neighbor, right? Uh, he's got, uh, I, I love also the, the most, the best part about that story. You know, I don't like the bottles that much. I don't think that the the three house robbers are that interesting. The most interesting part about that story to me is his yard. In his yard, he has these s- sort of statues. And they're all moss covered and overgrown, but they're almost like totemic gods that he picked up uh, in the South Seas and just planted in his front yard. Like, this uh, this guy would be a, a very strange neighbor to have, you know? Mm-hmm. And people, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think he puts any of his neighbors in there, but if you break into his house, um, you're in trouble, right? Uh, I, I get the sense that the, this old woman would also, she, you know, she doesn't seem to have any friends or house guests, right, other than uh, Smithers, Withers, uh, Johnson, <laughs> and and that was the uh, real names of Three Dog Night. I think <laughs> <laughs> you can see why they changed their name. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, this idea of of her being um, not wholly of this dimension um, would sort of explain why she she's so weird. But she's also, it's like she's an alien trapped on Earth. And she's also raising this kid. Um, And she gives him too much money. Maybe as, uh, I was thinking, maybe the reason she gives him too much money is because she knows she's a shit. She knows she's kind of (laughs) a jerk. And and the thing is, is Seton himself is kind of a jerk. And he does the exact same stuff as she does. He he plays chess the way she does. He... uh, lavishes food the way he does and he wears a bangle the way she does and he just isn't of this earth in the way she is, right? Or she isn't as well. And so there's this like, this it's more of a tragedy. Like, I don't I don't I don't know that I mean, the whole takeaway from this story is fuck, man this poor kid and this whole poor situation, right? What we feel a little guilt when he, when he, uh, you know, finds out he's going to be the best man at the wedding. He's not even really. He's the best friend. He's the best man, and he's barely. <laughs> right. That's it's a tragedy. It's a life tragedy. 
Well, that, that's what the, the, he says. What, what's life been to me? Nothing but a trap. And when one is set free, it only begins again. It is a, it's this eternal, like, mm. what? There's those mulberry leaves again, yeah. Right, and yeah, and, and so what am I? I'm, I'm either, you're either a feeder or you're the food. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she's she's conscious of it, right? She she talks like, I mean, she she's not talking the kind of game that, you know, she, she's not an Oscar Wilde lady, you know, she's not mocking society. I would say she's, she's not. conscious of 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 what society is and what society's <laughs> doing, and yet she's a part of it. she's not a part of it. She's outside of it. It's almost like she's seeing it from a historical perspective. And then she's also, like, she's deliberately chosen a life where she's not a mother, right? Deliberately chosen, uh, we, we, we assume, not to get married. I mean, it'd be hard to marry her, maybe. But she's chosen those things, and yet she's also forced into that role. And so I, I see her as both a monster and, and um, sort of a tragic figure. But I, I I I didn't start off with that. I was like, this is sexual abuse story or something like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what's underneath it? Uh, because it, it it's just so masterfully put together that there's no one answer, right? Other than mean? Smithers is kind of a shit, and uh, Seton, yeah, he's c- kind of a he's a creepy boy buying rat poison, and uh, you know, caging up things in his room. But it, it seems to me every time we could make a conclusion that she's being mean, there's another way of going. Like, for example, a lot of people pointed out she's mean because of X, Y, and Z. And just pick one. Like, X, um, she gives him the small room, right? Smithers gets the, uh, sorry, Seton gets the small room and Withers gets the uh, the big room. But the big room is for the dead boy, right? Yeah. Um, and who made the room full of cages and um, boxes? You know, you give a kid a room, they paint the walls black, what you going to do, right? <laughs> That's how some kids are, especially when they don't have any friends. They play and goth music all and, night. And what's wrong with that? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's all, it, This story is all about interpretation. Right. Yeah, and what about if I feel like I'm in a cage? Like, you know, it's all it's a reflection of me. Yeah. It's it's a masterful story because there's no definitive answer, but there's so many interesting parallels that we could come to the conclusion that she is a vampire. But we can also come to the conclusion she's she's a telepathic witch. <laughs> we could... Or Black Widow. Yep. Well, yeah, yeah, she I, never I, got I, married, I, though. I, I, I don't buy... Right? I don't buy no, she didn't... No, I meant, sorry, like, a, but a spider. A spider. Yes, definitely a spider. spider. Definitely. Yeah. What, 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 to, what don't you buy, Wayne? Uh, well, I agree that she could be considered a tragic figure, but I, I don't buy any inkling of, uh, of uh, innocence in her. I think she's uh, out and out horrible person and Mm. the only question in my mind is the one he leaves you with which is you know is she a horrible person because it's just a dysfunctional family and she's a negative bitter old woman Mm. or is she what uh, her nephew believes she is you know a spider with the devil exactly 
What, what does anybody think? What, what happened to her brother? Like, there's she is mm. alone. What happened to the rest mm. of her family? Like, what you know? Like, that's what I was thinking. Okay, so here she is. Now she's on her on her nephew. But where, where's everybody else? What happened? I, I can I can speak to one possibility for one of her relatives. Okay. Um, I think I told this theory to Mr. Jim Moon at some point in the past because I I was looking at my show notes. Uh, or I, I did a search for something and it did come up. So there's a story from 1910 called The Terror of the Blue John Gap. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, this is an Arthur Conan Doyle story, a very interesting mm. story. Um, that uh, I'll just read the opening from Wikipedia. The story comprises the adventure of a British doctor recovering from tuberculosis who s- goes to stay at a Derbyshire Derbyshire farm looking for rest and relaxation becomes entrapped in a series of sinister events and forced to uncover the mysteries surrounding the blue john gap and the terror that lurks within it so this is uh the blue john is a, a real kind of um precious semi-precious stone um mineral i guess you could think of it like um what's the inside of an oyster shell called mother of pearl sort mm-hmm. of but blue um, and if you, uh, the, the Romans mined in England this place, and there's a monster in the, uh, in the um, cave or mine. Um, but the whole story comes uh, from, uh, a, I guess it's a letter. This whole story has been encapsulated in a letter, and I, I think... Uh, the the doctor of the story is dead at the end of the story, um, but it's all in co- it's all addressed to a letter named Seaton. Mm. Um, so mm. I'll, I'll read the Wikipedia entry for uh, just under Seaton here. It says a friend of Hardcastle. Hardcastle addresses his notes to the events of the events to him, inquiringly apparently. Enquiry apparently failed to identify who Seaton was and his identity and even his existence. It all remains a mystery. So uh, I, I vaguely recall that his name was Samuel from the from the story. And if you remember, there's a painting on the wall in mm-hmm. the bedroom. Yeah. And is it the one with the two small men pulling a boat ashore? Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but I know the initial. No, it's, it's the one with the uh, I. Uh, with the one with is the I. S, is S. Seaton. Right. Yeah. I always assumed though that the um those little eye paintings were done by Seaton's and herself. Oh, that's mm. interesting. It's interesting. Um yeah, we never got her first name, but that would make sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um especially given how uh Arthur treats her um thinking uh, that she knows everything. She's always watching. I mean, you could. Im- I was thinking one way of doing this story is to retell it as a modern story, um, with a kid who's you know a bit weird at school, but he's like I know from my own uh, youth. You know, I- I've had experiences like this where you go over to somebody's house and they're, they're like just strange, and you you're not really their friend, but you know, you got bribed to go. <laughs> he has a he has a Vic twenty. Wow! <laughs> All I have is a TI-99 4A, and they don't have the same games, right? So you go over to their house, and you're hanging out with them, and 
Uh, he's like, this is this kid's not the kid I want to be hanging out with, but you know, you you have to say the nice things to the strange people who live there. Um, so if if we were retelling it as a modern story, you know, you could do, you know, the she has security cameras in every room, right? <laughs> Is there one in the bathroom? I didn't go in the bathroom. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you could totally retell this as uh, you know a modern, a modern story because mm. we have the same kinds of issues and problems today, um, as as we had back then, and uh, I mean, I just I think that the ant might not be the monster she seems to be. No, she's a monster. I know, but she, 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 her monstrousness seems to be most manifest in her awareness, right? It's, it's her awareness of what she's doing. She's self-conscious. And I note that Alice is the opposite, right? She is almost conscious less. Mm. She's barely there, right? She's barely in the story. Um, and I don't assume she's dead. I think she's. She moved away, right? That's what the aunt That's says, anyway. Like. Yeah. yeah. Um, did she move away because Seton is dead, or did she move away and then Seton died? Right. It's not clear. It's not clear what's going on. But if she if she is alive, she escaped. But did she escape the aunt, or did she escape Arthur? Ah. Excellent question. Probably both. <laughs> they are the same person in a lot of senses, right? It's almost like a doomed... They are a weird race of two people left in this in Something strange like family. That. <laughs> Bengal-wearing, sallow-faced, uh, <laughs> prodigious eaters. <laughs> Gardening eaters, right? It's a... It's a it, I, 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 kept, I kept thinking also that... At some point, we're gonna find the the deep one crown in one of her. You know, they're gonna open open up one of her her chests of jewelry, and there's gonna be a deep one crown in there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the this is from the shadow out of Innsmouth, over Innsmouth, right? There's, there's this crown, that, and then there's no like that's the difference between this story and a Lovecraft story is that uh, there's a this extra outside person rather than finding out it's your own family and the racism right i i was like are, what why are they so racist against this guy it's just because he's not english so, so I, I was trying to find a place to put my sympathy and i couldn't put it anywhere yeah exactly they're all they're all screwed up yeah. <laughs> no matter no matter which way ends up being the truth out of the uh no, ambiguousness to, you know, they're screwed <laughs> individually and as, as a group and as any, uh, any combination of those people, you know, there's, uh, the relationships are all, you know, screwy. It's a, as you said, it's a kind of, you know, it's a, it's like, it's a tragedy no matter how you look at it. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't read a lot of other Walter Delamere, but I, I, from what I read, Mr. Jamoon, you pointed me to an essay um, it sounds like this is he has this character sort of come up again and again, a woman like this. Uh, yes, but there's also um, some of these other ghost stories. One of my favorites, 
probably I, I think I, I like it a bit more than Seaton's Aunt. I flip flop on it, but uh, called All Hallows, mm-hmm. which is about a church which has been corrupted by this evil, an evil force in a, in a similarly sort of ambiguous and strange way. But that just builds up in such a powerful mood of this place that should be holy that has gone sour. Mm. Um, uh, it's full of very strange dark hints of kind of almost kind of like your Blackwood sort of Macanesque sort mm. of cosmic powers that are, you know, beyond our comprehension. Um, and who wrote uh, that? Think kind of, uh, that's another Walter de la Mer. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a good BBC radio uh, version of it. Uh, knocking around on YouTube, I think from the 1970s, which mm. is well worth uh, tracking down. They did a series of four. They did a version of Seton's Ant as well. And, uh, oh. Yeah, they slimmed it down to about half. Or, or is that a... Well, yeah, it's down to about half an hour. Yeah, okay. I thought like that was a just a reading play. that had been abridged. But is it a full drama? Uh, no, it's more more or less readings, actually. Yeah, but uh, say heavily abridged. Yeah, it's a heavy abridgment because I think mm. your version is an hour and twenty minutes or something like that. Yes, yeah, not far. Yes, yeah, like eighty minutes or something like that. I noticed. I accidentally. Um, this is something that, like, I I I was trying to listen to a another podcast and I set the settings so that it clips out the this the pauses. You know, on your app you can do that, or you can also <laughs> speed it up. And when I when I, I didn't realize it, it applied it to all podcasts, so I went back to listen to yours, and the story became incredibly insane without the pauses, like <laughs> just the transitions. Because mm. the, uh, so when she says this is your space or you know your space, um, I thought, oh, she's talking about the board, right? On the because that's what this paragraph's about. It's about chess, but actually she might be talking about the the bedroom and say don't leave the bedroom <laughs> yeah and of course he does leave the bedroom but at the other boy's prompting um and he's it's like rebelling like this is a powerfully interesting way of writing where he he's layering in these themes that they're almost ineffable you can't really put words to them but this whole thing is all just made up of words right it's just words so I, I i would like to see an ad, audio drama adaptation i don't think it would work very well as a comic book because in the interpretation just like in that that video adaptation you know with the spook of the of the mannequin head and the wig we're making conclusions that are not makeable in just text so much of this is just the way it's told, and if you take away, like, if, I, I literally think if you if you were told this was a a true story, and it was a from a memoir, you would say, well, that was certainly a strange lady. Um, mm. uh, but you wouldn't say she was a witch or a vampire. In fact, you might say the guy who wrote this is a fucker, and his interpretation is off. This is just a liberated, thoughtful lady. Well, um, the, what about the part where she's playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata? Mm. So they're looking at the at the happy couple, ostensibly wanting to be happy, wishing they could be happy couple, out on the walking, and so she she decides to play a beautiful piece of music, and then either through her 
personality, however you want to interpret mm-hmm. it, or her occult skill in playing, she satirizes the beautiful music and makes it disillusioned and charged with mockery and bitterness. So it's like, okay, so there's some, there's a happy couple out there. I'm over here. This is what I think of it. Like it's still same beautiful music, but like ruined. Uh yeah. Um, again, that's interpretation, right? So, uh, I mean, sometimes, you know, I know people who they just interpret things wrong, right? You mean, <laughs> just, you like they're they're processing it through a a, a filter of hate. Or something, but there is something really awesome to what you're saying because it reminds me of something that happens at the end of that paragraph. Um, listen to this. Uh, I, I, somebody else found this out. Oh, it's the next paragraph. Um, okay. Uh, she began to play the opening bars of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. The piano was old and woolly. <laughs> there's a lot of funny language in here. Um, yeah. Just uh, there's a lot of words like that must be just schoolboy words that I've never even heard of. Um, she played without music. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The lamplight was rather dim. The moonbeams from the window lay across the keys. Her head was in shadow. And whether it was simply due to her personality or some really occult skill in her playing, I cannot say. I only know that she gravely and deliberately set herself to satirize the beautiful music. Um, <laughs> and I've seen that done with music, but I don't. I can't picture it exactly. It brooded on the air. Disillusion, charged with mockery and bitterness. I stood at the window. Far down the path, I could see the white figure glimmering in that pool of colorless light. A few faint stars shone, and still, uh, that echoes back to her dress as well, when he first sees her, right? Black uh, dress with silver stars. Mm. And still the amazing woman, uh, he, he sometimes gives these strange compliments her wonderful head he said at one point in the story right the amazing woman behind me dragged out the unwilling keys <laughs> so the, the, the keys don't even want to play it right yeah her wonderful grotesquerie of youth and love and beauty it came to an end i knew the player was watching me now he can see through the back of his head right please please go on i murmured without turning please go on playing miss seaton why does he say that if he like, is she controlling him? And then it's that thing of just politeness again. I guess, yeah. I mean, a lot of his problem is politeness, right? Is the reason he uh, uh, he says you should come to the city and go shopping. It didn't didn't doesn't how does it go on? Doesn't he say ironically? Like he didn't really mean it. He's just like saying it no, to like. It doesn't say ironically. He just says, what, "Please go on it playing." It says, uh, "Please go on." I murmured without turning. Please go on playing, Miss Seaton. Um, there's this that repetition. Um, yeah. But I, I want to read the next paragraph. But I, I want to yeah. also come back to the scene um, where he's leaving them for the city. Uh, no answer was returned to my rather fluttering sarcasm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, but a few. Uh, but I knew in a, some indefinite way that I was being acutely scrutinized. So she recognized that he's being sarcastic. Uh-huh. So she was the one being um, sarcastic, he said, right? With the yeah. word, with the playing, which I don't know if you, I don't know how to do that to Moonlight Sonata, but maybe you can do it. <laughs> maybe you do it really fast. Um, 
But I knew in some indefinite way that I was being acutely scrutinized when suddenly there followed a procession of quiet, plaintive chords which broke at last softly into the hymn. Now, this hymn is not explicitly said in the in the um, story. It doesn't give the uh, lyrics, but it's called A Few More Years Shall Roll. Um, and... I, I read this in somebody's... Uh, yeah, this is how it goes. A few more years shall roll, a few more seasons come, and we shall be with those that rest asleep within the tomb. Then, O oh my Lord, prepare my soul for the that great day. O oh, wash me in thy precious blood and take my sins away. A few more storms shall beat on this wild rocky shore, and we shall be where tempests cease. Tempests cease, and surges swell no more. Then, O oh my Lord, prepare my soul for that calm day. And then, O oh, wash me of this thy precious blood and take my sins away. So, um, she's responding to his sarcasm by changing the tune. Yeah, she changes it to a hymn, which is, uh, and you, it makes you wonder... Um, what significance did that have to her? Uh, did the actual uh, religious meaning of it have uh, strike some chord in her? Was she looking for redemption, as it were? Or is it just, uh, well, here's a morbid song about death for you. Yeah, you know, yeah. Or was she just yeah. pitching it back to him? Mm-hmm. Well, he responds, he says, I confess it held me spellbound. There is a wistful, strained plaginate. Pl- 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 pathos in the tune but beneath those masterly old hands it cried softly <laughs> and bitterly the solitude and desperate estrangement of the world arthur and his lady love vanished from my thoughts no one could put into a rather hackneyed old hymn tune such an appeal who had never known the meaning of the words their meaning anyhow isn't commonplace i that's exactly right this lady isn't commonplace i turned very cautiously and glanced at the musician she was leaning forward a little over the keys so that at my approach uh the approach of my cautious glance she had but to turn her face in the thin flood of moonlight for every feature to become distinctly visible and so with the tune abruptly terminated we steadfastly steadfastly regarded one another and she broke into a chuckle of laughter i think that there's something going on about sexuality between these two characters as well and it never comes to anything right but she's almost like she's engaging with him like an adult when he's a kid. And then when he's a, an adult, uh, he, she says something, again, very much like that, the silkworm, right? You've, you've dropped the, uh, the body of, of a boy and put on the clothes of a man. Something like that, yeah. And then, mm-hmm. of course, when we first see Seton as an adult, his coat is too big for him, right? It's there's something really good about what's going on in this the, the way this story is told that it's 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 quite brilliant and and this most, most touching scene is when um when uh, I think it, it's just it's if if I was if this really happened to me I would feel take solace in the fact that Seton is so grateful uh for the uh, for the invitation uh, to visit him in the city. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think he thanks him a bunch of times. He he thanks him over and over and over again, and it's almost like I'm not going to take you up on this, but I I really appreciate it because I'm dying. Right? Yeah, exactly. There's one aspect of that that I was curious about too, is that um, you know through the whole thing, uh, Seton is the um, the the paranoid. Uh, literal ghost haunted uh, victim of his uh, league with the devil aunt and um, at one point uh, he he's trying to explain the situation to Withers and says um, um, where is it even this room's nothing more than a coffin I suppose she told you it's all exactly the same as when my brother William died trust her for that Good luck to him, I say. He raised his candle a little closer to the watercolor. There's hundreds of eyes like that in the house, and even if God does see you, he takes precious good care that you don't see him, and that's the same with them. I'll tell you what, Withers, and here it is. I'm getting sick of all this. I shan't stand it much longer. Now, that makes me wonder. Um, I think he definitely did die, but did he die as a victim directly of his evil aunt or did he take his own life i wonder if he committed suicide did you get definitely digging in the garden right he's it's it's Mm. it it might be uh either she goes or the curtains you know (laughs) either she goes or i go but Um, i wonder if i wonder if that's i just wonder if that's how how he died yeah i wonder if he ended up killing himself maybe maybe that's what the rat poison was for huh ah he's planning all the way back then finally i All the things are, all my plans are falling into place. I, I got my, I got my, uh, I shared that mulberry uh, jelly that I didn't actually have duplicates of. That was my trick to get a friend to come stay. Uh, my aunt is so looking forward to seeing you. Um, it's the old, it's the old mulberry jelly trick. That's right. <laughs> I mean, we've done, uh, I'm sure we've all done such deceptions, right? You say, oh, I just, uh, I, I came into some money and you give it to somebody who needs it when you uh, maybe not <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know you've, you're in a situation where you lie to help somebody so that they don't mm, have to feel mm. bad yeah. and in this case he's 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 taking a, a personal hit i mean the, one of the amazing things is we are told that he has lavish pocket money and he even says, well, she's not so bad a lady. She gives you lots of pocket money. And the thing is, for stupid boys, that's exactly what you want, right? That's the That determines whether you're an, a nice person or not. <laughs> Did you get a lot of money from your parents? Your parent must be nice because they give you lots of pocket money. Meanwhile, they're giving you, you know, uh, some sort of sexual abuse. That's not so good. But the lots of pocket money compensates, right? Because kids are fucking stupid. Yeah, it especially could if, you, be if you get the. Uh, that he never the... had a lot of pocket money. He just gave it all to all these people in hopes that somebody would be his friend, right? That would be, yeah, that would be in character, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the fact that he's he's uh, so lonely and so weird, and he, he's trying to start a fashion trend at school with a bangle that he stole from his gra- his aunt, right? Um, well, I think the bangle might be. Um, it, an amulet against her. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's interesting. I, yeah. I, 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 I don't know why. I've, 
it's just a reading between the lines. Mm. It's kind of, I think, that, you know, it's something maybe he picked up and, you know, you can, you know, you find these good luck charms and whatnot. And it's very sort of schoolboy thinking of, oh, like, if I've got my lucky rabbit's foot, you know, of uh, I can ward off the evil eye yeah. or the evil ant. Yeah, that's cool. Interesting. Mm. The, there's one um, other issue. The girl, her name is Alice. Her mm-hmm. last name, mm-hmm. Outram. Uh which is not a normal word. You know, uh, Seton is, a, I mean, I think that that's a real name. I think there are people named Seton, right? Yep, yep. Withers, I mean, it's it's funny. It's a funny name because he's not the one withering, right? Smithers <laughs> is a, a servant name, and Johnson is just a comedy name. This is, <laughs> this is some good stuff. Um, but Outram, uh, that, it says that it's, you know, Oh, listen to this. Out originates either from a now lost medieval village believed to have been in Derbyshire, which is where that story takes place, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. The Terror of the Blue John Gap. Are, are we ever told where this story takes place? It's near the sea, I think. Uh, well, it's somewhere near London. It's only a bus ride away in mm. 1920, so it can't be... And a train ride away, so it's not hugely far away. Mm. Um, it's uh, Derbyshire is in the Midlands, so it, yeah, yeah, that'd be a bit far, and it's not quite close enough to mm-hmm. the sea to be the location. But he's also, you know, I don't think it is Derbyshire. I, I don't think there's any evidence for that. Um, but England's small, right? <laughs> it's, Even it's so, though, it's still like uh, <laughs> think of like nineteen. Uh, early 1900s travel cat you know buses weren't terribly fast yeah the other the other uh, thing is when is the so you story can get, you can get there and back in a day and well, obviously this for another important point <laughs> there is actually a bus a late night bus you can take back to mm, london mm. so it's not that far away well that's you know, that's in the, that's in the second visit though right so the first visit um mm. and in the in the video one they he has a car um, and it gives you a sort of period. But um, when they're boys, um, and it doesn't say how old they are, but I would guess they're around 11 years old because they're giving each other piggyback rides and hiding in closets. This is hopefully not something, you know, teenage boys would be doing. <laughs> <laughs> but who knows, right? <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, they're, they're carrying candles, tapers around the house. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume that's because there's no electric lighting. Um, so I, I would say that the story is set in the 19th century in the first uh, meeting. And then in the second and third meeting, they're in the 20th century, uh, some sometime closer to uh, when the story is first published in the 20s. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe it's not the 19th century, very 1900 or something. This sort of schoolboy thing, I think, is a early 20th century phenomenon, but I'm sure that was existing in the 19th century as well. It's, um, it's a, a, f- a fascinating story, and I think it could be studied even more than it has been. And people could really find interesting stuff going on. Because the way the ant is characterized is so wholly through the eyes of Withers and then through the eyes of 
Seaton, and you can't trust him. He's a liar. They're both liars. Are you Seaton a liar? Seaton is definitely a liar at some point. There's a point where he he uh, he says something that um, it was deceptive. I'm I'm trying to remember where it is, but well, there was some... the money thing. There was that. Well, that that was that was Withers's, um, shall we say, conclusion. But his conclusions aren't to be trusted. That's I well, mean, yeah, he we... has a whole thing of kind of oh, I forgot about his wedding, and I didn't even say the cards are a present. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Actually, it's worse, though, fucker. You were supposed to be best man. Yeah. (laughs) Well, did did Seton never even ask him? The aunt said, you're going to be the best man. We didn't hear Seton ask him. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't ask. But but you'd think, you know, you'd be maybe a little bit more on the ball. And, uh, you know, it. Anyone else in that seriously? Christ, was was I supposed to be best man? <laughs> yeah, not, not like I didn't send a card. Well, he, but he, you know, it's kind of yeah. he, he completely forgets um, things. You know what I mean? And the way he's sort of like you know, he, he's creeped by the ant, and then it, but you know, to see, oh, you know, he's not such a bad old stick. Lay off, <laughs> and it's kind of you hypocrites. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I it is funny the way he, he 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 what he says doesn't necessarily match the emotion that he's having, right? And no. So that's that's the I I I I went or I just made the assumption everybody's telling the truth all the time. That's how I, I walk, right? And then I notice wait, wow. that's inconsistent. I know. That's why I'm surprised how, by how stuff, right? I, I, I yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> the uh the when the ant starts talking and she she says stuff like um, uh, I don't think it's any secret um, when it's actually a secret I don't think that that's lying I think that that's her way of being clever and arch right and, and snarky it's her uh, it's just she's a weird lady right she's just a weird lady and she is it about control or is it about um, just being playful playful. Her? I say playful, mm. Mm. but I see that you know. I mean, she has theoretically all the power, right? She's the ant. It's not really the ant. <laughs> but the, I also like that the kids have so much. Um, what do they call it? Free rangeness now, right? <laughs> they have to go into the chemist and buy some rat poison. Take the bus yeah. by themselves, <laughs> you know. Um, it's what, uh, what allowed bullying to flourish, I guess, as much as it as it did. But um, it, bullying doesn't have any trouble now either. Uh, no, but it's all online mm-hmm. <laughs> or text message bullying, right? So probably Snapchat bullying, so the evidence disappears. Probably, yeah. Yeah, I don't. Uh, yeah, but it, I I, th- I think that it really this story really speaks to. Uh, the mistakes of perception that you have in childhood. You know, you make bad judgments about people. Um, and and then those bad judgments have consequences to your own guilt. This is like a confession story in a certain sense, right? There was this kid I knew at school. He died. Here's how I feel about it. And it was kind of weird. Yeah, there's a uh, there's sort of a, a mention in that in there somewhere in there withers uh, is having a, having the almost an argument 
uh, with Seton. Seton's telling him about the ghosts and his horrible aunt, and she's in league with the devil, and oh my God, and um, uh, Withers isn't buying it, and he's like, you know, maybe I, uh, I think this uh, this this might be just some guilt because you know you're 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 always mistreating the old bird, you know, cut her right. a break. <laughs> right, and maybe he's right. That's what I'm saying. Maybe he's right. Because what does she actually do that's so wrong? Other than the way it's perceived, what does she actually do that's so wrong? Yeah, she plays the piano too fast. She, like, these no, are no, if bullshit. If you look at actually what she says and the yeah. way she talks and the way that's she right. treats him, if, if, if she, it's calculated like cruelty. Yeah, she's yeah. a bully. She's a, uh, you, you brought up that term first, I think, Jim. I think, that's, that, yeah. That's what she is. She's, she's emotionally abusive mm. to that kid. <laughs> She is. emotionally abusive see i think as well I, as everything else i think that the, i think that uh, even that is a fine line because she's definitely emotionally neglectful right she is not attuned to his his emotional needs but this is also a kid who's sent to boarding school right um if you were saddled like i don't have any kids I know you have them. So you probably at some point made a decision. I'm going to have some kids and I'm going to treat them right. right? I Me, I like to have uh, students because they go away. <laughs> and I don't have to deal with the problems completely. <laughs> They're sort of, you know, like if, if I was suddenly saddled with uh, a kid who was not my own, I would do my best. But I'm, I'm not perfectly attuned to, you know, wanting to take care of kids because I, I would think I'd do a bad job. Right? So you... Uh, it seems to me like the emotional abuse that she heaps on him is pretty minor. She has these names she calls them. She like well, I don't know. You I'm looking for sexual abuse. He, I'm looking says, for physical uh, abuse, and I don't see any of that stuff. Yeah, not physical abuse, not but defi physical. definitely, emo definitely emo emotional abuse. I mean, through yeah. the whole thing, even even taking she never gaslights. You know, she calls him a creature. She badmouths him when he's right in the room. She talks about him in the third person with. Uh, she does do that. You yeah. know, so I mean, that's, she that's... never gaslights him. She never lies to him and says what you believe is like that is real emotional abuse. When you say to someone that never happened, um, you're wrong. Your perceptions are wrong about what happened. That the thing that you says happened didn't happen, even though it did. You know, like that is classic <laughs> abuse. She does. Yeah. She is emotionally uh, insensitive to. Uh, I mean, she, it's possible that she's, she aggressive. Also, she's aggressive too. She demeans him through the whole thing. She does, and and he says she knows everything that I think. Like we don't know what conversations they've had for him to mm. say she knows everything mm -hmm. that I think and that I do. So what has she been saying to him? You know, like you don't you, you don't know. Look, he's a squashed human. You don't get squashed <laughs> by in in a loving home. Yeah, but he he's also getting squashed at school, right? Yeah, but not, you know, it, it, you know, have you have you you've heard the you've heard it said that a person that is abused bring they, it's not that they want more abuse, but people abuse them. Oh yes, victim. You know, he's, because they have this victim. Yeah, I, I think yep. that 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 is the strongest case against her, is that she is wholly uninterested in his emotional being, right? That. She is abusive in the sense that she is neglectful of what what you should be like if you're trying to be a loving parent. 
Yeah, and they've done those studies with baby monkeys. If they put a baby monkey right, in a, in a right. room with a with a cloth monkey, the monkey withers. <laughs> <laughs> what about what about if they put her in with a with a uh, the the monkey in with a, um, a tadpole? <laughs> because the tadpole <laughs> <laughs> needs to swim around in its pool, and it, the emotional <laughs> touching uh, is putting them in cages. I. I don't know what's I don't know what I don't know what the answer is, but I know that this story is very subversive. Very, At this very point, subversive. I don't even know what the question is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What is what is this story? What is the story? It's not it's not exactly uh, it's not fantasy. I don't think it's definitely not science fiction. It's definitely weird fiction. Mm. Uh, but is it a ghost story? I think that the ghosts are sort of the least present uh things in here vampires True. stronger i would say yeah it's it's like an, it's one of those un, those stories that um like he, he she he says she reminds me of something unshakable prehistoricism mm. that's the word so it's like this eternal evil <laughs> that's just there you know like forever yep they're like silurians something like that <laughs> <laughs> That's a Doctor Who reference, I guess. Oh, um, good. Thank you. <laughs> I was wondering. There are, torn, there are you know, leftovers from it. Yeah, they're the original inhabitants of uh, Doggerland, you know, like the... Uh, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> there, there was a land bridge between England and the rest of Europe. Um, what was that, 35,000 years ago or something like that? Um, and uh, they, moved, they moved to... Uh, Derbyshire, wherever this story is taking place, I mean, it, it it feels so Lovecrafty because of all the references to the the fish, the fish eyes, and the sallow skin, and mm. um, what it doesn't have is that sympathy of the narrator being the the one afflicted, right? That he is he is doomed. Here we're looking at it from an outsider's point of view. I guess that that shows up in um, in uh, the rats in the walls. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, uh, the, uh, what's the one set in Ireland? Um, the moon, the bug. moon bog, right? And also, uh, or I guess the story is comparable also to the John Buck in the Grove of Ashtaroth, where you've got a uh, a figure who is afflicted by um, his ancestry. And uh, uh, but yeah. there's more action in 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 the end. It's more of. Um, uh, the the narrator's less of a shit, I guess. <laughs> and that's a good way to end the podcast. <laughs> you know what I would you know what I would love? I'd love I'd love to hear Jim read the last paragraph oh, the please. close of this. Yeah, if I can do that. Go to the end. There we are. And again I paused irresolutely a few paces further on. It was not, I fancy, merely a foolish apprehension of what the raw bone butcher might think that prevented my going back to see if I could find Seton's grave in the benighted churchyard. There was precious, there was precious little use in pottering about in the muddy dark merely to find where he was buried. And yet I felt a little uneasy. My rather horrible thought was that so far as I was concerned, 
one of his esteemed few friends, he had never been much better than buried in my mind. Dark. (laughs) Yeah, that's a line. That word dark, didn't that come up in here? I think it's in the... Oh, yes. I want to hear that one, too. Let me see if I can find that. What part of the story is that in? Because that that is that is uh, that is something I didn't touch on, and she definitely got a dark philosophy. <laughs> uh, oh, here it is. Uh, and why? Oh, uh, here we go. It's when talking about um, Alice. Alice. Yeah, her Outram. hair. Yeah. Um, I was not a man of the world, nor was I much flattered in my stiff and dullish way of looking at things by being called one. I could answer her without the least hesitation. So I don't know what that man of the world stuff is, but I have ideas. I don't think, Miss Seaton, I'm much of a judge of character. She's very charming. Um, I don't know if he's lying there, but I do know he's judging Miss Seaton the whole story, right? A brunette? I think I prefer dark women. And why? Consider Mr. Withers' dark hair... Dark eyes, dark cloud, dark night, dark vision, dark death, dark grave, dark, dark. (laughs) She's goth, yo. (laughs) 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 They're not in the room, right? This is one of the scenes where he's not um, criticizing the ladies, you know, the guy's choice of a lady. While she's standing there. They're out in the yard. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the climax would have rather thrilled Seton, but I was too thick-skinned. Uh, yeah. I don't know much about that, I answered rather pompously. Broad daylight, difficult enough for most of us. <laughs> 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 that is true. <laughs> now, this is not a story for uh, when you're feeling a bit glum, I think. <laughs> it's a story for <laughs> no. when you're feeling a bit too bright and chipper. This will bring it down real That's good. me, all right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, satirical laughter. All right. Wow. And uh, I wanted to ask, too, um, mm-hmm. I told you uh, at the beginning of this that uh, I missed getting Jim's copy of this, but uh, is there a place online that we could uh, uh, listen to it or purchase it? or? We're going to put it at the front of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in Mr. Jim Moon's uh, Patreon feed already. Awesome. Um, and I will a, uh, send you my the two file. birds, one stone strategy in recording. Uh, you know what? That's a brilliant strategy. <laughs> That's a brilliant strategy. Um, definitely. You should do that. I got a whole back catalog of stuff I made you record for me that you can shove in there. You know, mm. take a break. <laughs> I, I think you, did you do the Grove of Ashtaroth? I think you did. Uh, yes, I did. Yeah. There you go. Not the Grover of Ashtaroth. <laughs> That'd be something entirely different. Story. (laughs) (laughs) Good story it is. Oh wait, no, that's Yoda. (laughs) Quite close, actually. Grover and Yoda. Ah, good show. Thank you, people. Yeah, man. Thank you. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Hello. Hello. Good morning. Hello. Hello. How are you? Evening, right? I'm good, thank you. Excellent. 
So we'll just chat for a minute while we wait for Wayne. I think I'm getting a little bit sick. I don't want to be oh. sick, but I felt a little tickle in my throat and my nose is a little bit congested. Beat it. Go take that vitamin C stuff. <laughs> you think that works? I don't know, but I, I drink it in just in case it does. Yeah. Oh, I'll go get an apple. That's what I'll do. I got an apple. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you did last time, yeah. too. <laughs> Very good. Do you still have apples on your tree? Because it's snowing here now. So any apple would be frozen dead like witch's apples. They're not on the tree anymore, but um, they're in the garage and they're uh, keeping very well. Honey oh, I'm glad they're keeping well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. The best part is you don't have to peel off the sticker. Yeah. Yeah. I w- what about the taste, though? That must be a close second, having fresh apple taste off a tree. I think it tastes better just because it's, it's um, you know, grown by you rather than, you know, when you yeah, you yeah. grow it in your yard. Even if it doesn't taste as good, it still tastes better. It's still better, yeah. yeah. Mm. Are you doing any uh, scrumping, Mr. Midjimoon? Uh No, I don't really do apples anymore now. Mm. <laughs> I like apples, but my teeth don't. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you make the cider for. No, apple pies, though, yes. Apple pie. Mm. Apple Mm. crumble. That's the best way. Sounds good. Soften an apple. (laughs) (laughs) I have um, uh, so many notes. I don't usually make notes, but they're all in my head. (laughs) And so I was desperately trying to, like... (laughs) <laughs> make some notes um i'm organizing them into meetings first meeting second meeting um i haven't done any notes for third meeting i'm sure they'll come up oh cool i assume you guys have volumes of notes too <laughs> oh there he is mental ones um, <laughs> yeah i have thoughts what are they mental thoughts They're, well i can't keep anything in my head i did have to write them down Hmm. <laughs> well, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How are we? Pretty good. Very good. All right. 